my man's Kedrick from Reformance. We we got you back. The last episode we had you on. Um it, it I could it was a surprise hit. I didn't know. So Kedrick Kwan is the powerlifting. What will we say? Nutrition? Are you? Would you call yourself a dietitian, nutrition coach? What would you say? Yeah, I guess I tell people <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like if I were to describe myself, I would say like I'm the Johnny Depp of powerlifting. That because it's like typecasted in the one role, right? So like when you associate powerlifting with nutrition, like sometimes like my name will pop up uh, among among others, but you know. I, I do think that people associate me with like powerlifting and nutrition. Uh, but I also do like powerlifting coaching, right? So obviously uh, I do powerlifting nutrition coaching for uh, lifters like E.B. Corrigan, right? Sheffield, right? So uh, Gavin Aiden, uh, I do his nutrition as well, right? Uh, uh, Jurin Skangamu uh, from from uh, Great Britain, I do his nutrition, people like that. But I also coach uh, lifters, right? Like I do their powerlifting programming, like Emil Krastev, uh, head of corner, right? So I do, I also do those, right? So I, I would say that I dabble in both aspects, uh, but predominantly, uh, people know me for powerlifting nutrition. So, you know, kind of like the Johnny Depp of powerlifting that he can only do one thing because I have actually met people uh, that are surprised when I tell them I actually do like powerlifting coaching, you know, not just powerlifting nutrition. Then people will be like, what? You know, I thought you only did nutrition. It's like, yeah, cool. You know, Johnny Depp is is either Captain Jack Sparrow or Willy Wonka. So that's kind of how it is. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I'm the Johnny Depp of powerlifting. I just went through a really, really messy divorce. And I don't want to get I'm like, all right, well, take it easy. But, um, yeah. I mean, also the GOAT, man. You 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 worked with uh, Taylor Atwood. I mean, you've worked with, like, the biggest of the big names. Evie Corrigan, obviously, just recently winning Sheffield by cutting down from 57 and she was a lean 57 cutting down to the 52 kilo class that's a significant drop for a woman that body size and murdering and taking sheffield and then people were like can she sustain this can she it's good to cut down and have one big performance can you sustain this new body weight and she is as ripped as ripped gets sustain that for a time period and then talk to me. That was a talk afterwards. I was concerned afterwards. Well, came back, won the world championships, breaking more world records and didn't even have to come out for a final deadlift to do it. So now people are like, okay, well, and you got Gavin Aiden, who's literally one of the thickest men I've ever seen in my life. So talk about a spread between what do you want? Do you want to drop down? Do you want to bulk up? Gavin Aiden is literally a meatball with legs and arms and, and, and <laughs> he is so thick. He, he, he is jacked as Jack can be. Um, God bless him. And, uh, and yeah, man, from obviously Taylor to Jerrins, who who's been on the podcast talked about the biggest difference, you know, I believe Jerrins can point to is he said, um, his caloric intake, he essentially wasn't eating, I mean, it was when he first came on, he got memed to hell by his other Brits. But he said, I used to eat like a banana and be like, I'm good for the rest of the day. And it's like, my friend, um, calories are literally the unit of energy that your body needs. You're not giving it enough. Well, I'm jacked. Yeah, you you might be jacked. 
It's got a slow metabolism though. God bless you're jacked, but you're not eating enough. So anyways, now that we got who you are, what you do, we got a lot of topics. I'll belt off some of the topics we're going to try to touch up on for people right now so that they stick around. Because last time when we talked, my friend, we went off, we talked for like two hours and I had tons of people reach. This was I, the reason why I say it was a surprisingly popular and I mean popular podcast. I was sure if people are like super into nutrition like this. Well, guess what, man? They are. Yeah, they I feel, are. feel that exact same way. Uh, it's three hours, three hours long, actually, by three hours, 15 minutes. So uh, I was like, I'm actually surprised people made it all the way to the end. Most people will come up, you know, and said, hey, you know, I really enjoyed the podcast. You know, I have a little bit of questions about this. And they will mention like things that I only spoke about like at the end of the podcast. So they they have to, they had to like stick all the way to the end, right? Because uh, like I said, you probably have a day job. So maybe you don't have time to put like timestamps because like obviously like Lex Friedman, he puts timestamps on everything so people can actually like skip. But yours, they don't, uh, you don't have timestamps. So when they tell me about asking me about this, I'm like, yeah, you know, I just said like, hey man, I uh, appreciate the question. Thank you for sticking all the way to the end of the podcast. Uh, it was really surprising to hear people have like such good feed feedback. So yeah, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for having me back to kind of like dive into different, different other topics. And hopefully I'll be able to, you know, uh, maybe the second round would be a good hit. Uh, and if we have a third one, uh, we can complete the trilogy, you know? So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Well, there'll be a third one, man. And um, in terms of timestamps, I do got a day job and I'm busy, but Playboy, I'm also an artist. You know, you can't you can't ask me to chop up this work and 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 have people cut through it like that. You know what I'm saying? You 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 sit down for that three hour epic movie and you fucking take it all in, and you appreciate the art we're creating. That's how that you okay? That's the stance we that's the stance we got to take. Yep. But um, I, I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with. So, um, all right, let's let's belt over. There's a few things I want to talk about. Um, a lot of it recently. I want to talk about the the usual suspects that people are gonna. It's gonna attribute directly as an athlete. So, quality and bioavailability of protein, whether it's from bars, shakes, meats. Um, you hear people come on. I had Stan Efferding come on years ago when he had his diet, the vertical diet, talking about shakes are for fakes, and you know. Yada yada. I don't know if this is. We'll talk about that. Um, should lifters be bulking, cutting into weight classes? Is there an advantage that you think there is to bulk in the off season than cut? Um, in the different conversations you have with people, it's like I'm thinking about cutting, and you're like, well, should you just bulk up and fill out your weight class, etc.? Obviously, this is case by case. Setting up a diet for a lifter of the top priorities. Water cutting for a lifter, top priorities. Um, caffeine and stims. Should these be cycled? Um, and, and your thoughts on cycling them or just running through gut cut. Now, a lot of people talk about gut cutting, and that's kind of the new way of doing things. What's the pros and cons of gut cutting, pros and cons of water cutting? Um, and which do you lean towards? And uh Maybe that's also personalized and depends on the person. We'll talk about it. During training, is it important to time your meals? How much, if it is important, how important? Is it a big advantage? Is it something to worry about? Um, and then we could carry that over into performance of the, the day of as well and uh, and get into those nitty gritties like we did last time. Um, what should you ideally eat before a big se gym session, if that matters? Um, if you If that's 
at all something that people can work with. A relationship with food, overlooked. And we could talk about the relationship with food. I've had a lot of people come on that have had uh, previous eating disorders. And as we move down and powerlifting's become more and more about eating for performance. And uh, we use our bodies for performance. We're in the gym for performance. And that discussion, now this is getting a little bit mixing, you know, nutrition and dieting with other things, but it's it's a good topic to have anyways. And something that maybe you keep ideally on the mind as well, gut biome. If you know much about that, we've seen also some discussion on, you know, this is good for your gut biome, et cetera. Um, how much you've how how much you feel this is actually something that we need to worry about as individuals or as athletes and how much that actually impacts us and and how much it might differ um also there's there's some stuff uh, well fiber fiber lane norton can't stop talking about how good fiber is and he's got me smashing my vegetables on the regular because it's so good for your cardiovascular uh reducing chances of cancer and just what you get out of fiber and um, how important you feel that might be for athletes if it's overrated underrated or something people need to talk about and recently also a lot of foods are getting banned skittles is going to get banned in california and then it got me yes if you're listening skittles is getting banned in california got me thinking what foods are banned right now that we don't know about i did a search and found an article that was released that talked about some foods that were banned in certain parts of the world. I had sent it to you and it's a little rattling and surprising. I'm, I'm not going to drop the list. We can go through the list together and, uh, and we can say why they're banned and what countries they're banned. And some of the, you might be in a country where it's not banned and you might be eating this food on a regular, like every morning, evening or afternoon or drinking it. So it's, interesting what some nations decide is unhealthy and others decide, well, you go ahead and you rock with it. Um, so we got a lot to talk about. And just like last time, I am absolutely certain we're going to go off into some stories and some tangents here and there. But um, yeah, well, we might as well go ahead and just get it started, my friend. And if you got anything you want to throw in, by all means. But uh Perhaps let's start off with, you know, we're, we're powerlifters, we're throwing on muscle mass and protein a lot of times is one of the number one things people think they got to look for when they're talking about weightlifting, bodybuilding, powerlifting. Are you getting enough protein? So maybe let's talk a little bit about what, it, what do you think is enough protein if there is something an enough for target for people to hit? And also that question about quality of protein is there such thing about quality and bioavailability depending on how you're consuming it if it's a meat uh, a shake or a bar it are shakes for fakes what do you think yeah i think one really easy way to kind of like just taking a massive boulder and just like chucking at a bunch of birds and killing all of them is to understand uh the function of protein right uh mm -hmm. i think in the context of resistance training so regardless of you know when i do my my nutrition coaching i think first of all a caveat here you know just to say that whatever i say is just uh based on my study uh and my experience so this is not your medical doctor's advice uh 
please consult with a proper professional if you before implementing anything. Uh, just to protect the two of us. Uh, who knows? Uh, right. but yes, I think that in in my coaching experience, what I have found is I usually tell people that protein is like the cornerstone of any nutrition plan that is uh related to uh, any form of resistance training adaptation whether that's uh, losing fat gaining muscle right or even just like lifting right or whether that's appetite regu uh, regulation so protein would always be the, the cornerstone of the diet i try to keep the protein amount relatively similar throughout uh there are certain circumstances where i would reduce it uh, which i would probably share uh late later if i get a chance but when we look at the function of protein uh you know protein is broken down into amino acids and you have different kind of amino acids and those amino acids are then responsible for uh, muscle building right that's one of it there's anything that requires sort of like building or regeneration in the body uh would require protein so not just from a perspective of muscle right but like your immune system as well right when people are sick uh you know they your body requires certain form of like uh amino acids to kind of like beef up the, the antibodies, all of that requires protein. Skin, right? That requires uh, protein. Uh, like, for example, people take collagen for their skin, right? Collagen protein is protein because of certain amino acids included. I cannot list all the amino acids uh, right now from the top of my head, but when it comes to protein, people have to understand that a very easy way to, to think about protein is that whatever that requires some form of like growth, right? Uh, or cell regeneration in the body requires some form of protein. And it's, that is not, and protein, is just not used specifically for muscle, even though it plays a major role. So with that being said, I think that going down the muscle route, we have to look at uh, what are the things that are really important, right? So uh, research has uh, shown like uh, something called uh, mTOR, right? Uh, which triggers muscle protein synthesis that kind of like kickstarts the process of muscle growing or regeneration. Uh, and those amino acids that are responsible for it primarily would be, you know, the essential amino acids. But the, the thing that we really want is actually leucine, right? Uh, leucine is the primary amino acid that's required uh, to kickstart that muscle protein synthesis response. And that, when you look at amino acid composition, meaning that what is what amount of this amino acid is contained in a particular protein source, that's usually how we evaluate uh sort of like protein quality, right? Uh, the higher the amount of amino acids for the goal that you're trying to achieve, uh, that protein uh, tends to be slightly higher quality. So for example, whey protein, uh, they tend to be uh, regarded very highly as, uh, as the highest form of protein because of its rich amino acids, uh, amino acid profile. And whey protein is also uh, predominantly protein by weight, meaning that for 100 grams of uh, protein, right? You, uh, sorry, for 100 grams of whatever your your of whey you're getting, depending whether it's a concentrate, isolate, or like how hydrolyzed it is, anywhere from uh, 70 to like 90 percent of protein. Whereas meat, I'm not saying that meat is bad, but obviously meat has other things as well, right? Meat is usually around 30 30 percent protein per 100 grams of weight, right? So obviously whey protein tends to rank high on top of that list uh, of high protein quality because you're just getting pure protein in a way, right? It's like looking at for example, like jewelry, right? If you're getting like a, a gemstone, like, and you're getting like pure diamond, right? And that, that's, that's like a high quality diamond. But if you're getting like, if there's other form of like uh, stones or like contamination or mix, then that stone is not really like 
a high quality gemstone compared to something that's pure. So you can look at it from protein from that perspective as well. Uh, and then there's obviously plant protein, right? Like soy protein, you know, pea protein, uh, you know, wheat, like wheat-based stuff like, like pasta, they tend to have higher amounts of uh, protein compared to like uh, a rice, right? Uh, so that is another factor. But when it comes to rice, uh, sorry, plant-based protein, the amino acid profile is very, very different, right? And people who are like vegan slash vegetarian, it may pose a challenge if you're not really uh, trying, if you're not varying your sources to ensure, to ensure that you're getting uh, either more protein content, right? Like a larger amount of protein in general or the full spectrum of amino acids. The reason why uh, you want larger amount of protein is because it increases the probability of having more of that amino acids. For example, like just throwing it out there, if you consume, let's say 50 grams of like soy, the numbers are not uh, true, right? Or representative of what the actual content is. Let's just say if you consume 50 grams of soy, you get 1.5 grams of leucine, okay? Um, and in the scientific literature, uh, roughly around 2 to 2.5 grams of leucine is what is required to trigger that, that max, maximize the muscle protein synthesis response. So you probably need more than 50 grams of soy, right? But you can get the same amount of leucine with like half that amount of whey protein. So that's an example. You either consume, you either mix and match your protein sources well to ensure that you are having a wide spectrum of amino acids if you're on a plant-based diet, uh, or you just increase the protein amount and just essentially that's like throwing the kitchen sink on the wall and then you just increase the probability of getting more of those amino acids. So that's another way to kind of evaluate things. But like I said, the reason why plant protein is they tend to be ranked lower uh, is because like I said, plant protein by weight has less amount of protein, which means that you have other stuff and people do run into trouble when it comes to a plant-based diet. If they're not uh, taking like plant-based protein, uh, protein shakes is that the calorie content, right? Because when you eat a large amount of foods to get a smaller amount of protein or, or you need, uh, sorry, if you need a more amount of food to get the same amount of protein, um, then your calories will be slightly higher compared to somebody who can get the same amount of protein with a lesser amount of food. So a plant-based diet, they tend typically they tend to run into those problems if they're not consuming like a like a plant-based protein shake, which you know nowadays with like technology and stuff, uh, some of them actually tend to be uh quite tasty. And then that kind of like touches on quality of protein shake and uh sorry quality of protein. And if you go down the the protein shake conversation, I don't think it's anything magical. It's simple. Uh, it can be helpful, like I said, if you need to reduce your calorie intake and uh, get the same amount of protein because like I said, whey protein or even like those plant-based protein, they tend to be quite high in uh, protein given the same amount of weight uh, of like the food, right? The food source. So that is one major advantage. The second, obviously, it's like convenience. Convenience would be great. Uh, but in terms of like absorption bioavailability, uh, I don't necessarily think any of that usually plays a large role provided some people do not have uh they're not allergic to certain things like for some for example some people may be uh, allergic to lactose right so they can't have specific like whey concentrate because whey concentrate tend to have more uh lactose compared to something that's like a highly processed whey isolate right so uh, unless you have like certain uh, allergic reaction towards certain specific foods uh, or food types uh, then i don't think that the absorption of bioavailability rate in general would matter in when it comes to the typical protein sources that people would usually consume. So uh, yeah, that's basically kind of like a primer on, I guess, protein quality. But like I said, always look, when, when we're trying to see whether it's useful for something, you look at the function of the thing and then look 
if that function does align with your goals. So if it does, then great. You know, you can kind of like head down that route of like, okay, cool. This is actually good for me or good for my goals. In terms of, um, you know, like with shakes or a bar, the form like that, or if it's a meat, does your body break one down quicker than the other and get it into the stream quicker than the other? Or is it, maybe it does, but not enough to make a significant difference to start, you know, yeah. worrying about that. So a lot of the kind of like experiments when they look out there to kind of like minimize confounding variables, they use uh, shakes just because they can consume it straight away, right? Uh, whereas like when people eat meat, first of all, uh, the digestion rate would be, of course, would be slightly slower, right? And usually when people eat meat, they eat it in the form of a meal, right? So they eat it with like vegetables and a carbohydrate sauce uh, and whatever uh, else they would consume it with. But when people consume protein shake by itself, consume it uh, uh, just a protein shake alone, right? Mixed with water. Some people like to mix it with milk, right? So that kind of like increases the, the rate of absorption. But I don't think that that would actually matter in the grand scheme of things uh, when it comes to absorption of protein, uh, especially since for most people, they would have multiple feedings throughout the day, right? And if you are resistance training, your body is kind of like sensitized towards uh, the protein response. It can be a muscle protein synthesis response could be elevated from like anywhere from like uh, 24 to 48 hours, right? So as long as you're eating enough protein throughout the day, right? And you're also training, you know, within like 24 to 48 hours, which most people do if they train like four times a week, right? And then uh, that timing, uh, sorry, the absorption rate doesn't really matter at all uh, because it is likely that if you're trying to consume something, like I said, the only time it probably matters is when you wake up first thing in the morning because when people go to sleep, they don't have an IV of like protein dripping into their veins, right? So they are fasted for like a long period of time. So that's probably like, that's why people usually say if you wake up, you want a, a quick feeding of protein uh, early in the morning uh, to kickstart the muscle protein synthesis response. Uh, obviously having protein, a larger amount of protein for breakfast as well has been shown to reduce like uh, probability or of like, eating more or binge eating throughout the day, right? A high protein breakfast does that better than uh, a, a breakfast that's slightly low in protein. So there's added benefit of eating protein earlier in the day. But once you get that first feeding of protein in uh, at an adequate amount, when I usually say adequate amount, I would tell the people that I coach roughly around 25 to 40, 40 grams, right? Would be, would be a good amount to start the day. And then once you get that in, you know, you can kind of like just relax, right? As long as you're getting enough throughout the day, uh, the absorption rate probably doesn't really matter. Uh, the timing probably doesn't really matter. And you don't have to fret too much on the small things because there will be times when uh, there, there will be times when you're not able to meet the strict schedule, right? And then for me, my, my role as a coach is to say like, you know, let's, you have other things to fret about, all right? Uh, let's not worry about this too much. Um, a couple of things. You said a couple of things that are interesting in there. Um, first, is protein more satiating than for instance, carbohydrates or fats as a general speak here. And I've, we've heard some things like that, like look at, and it might, you know, we'll, we might be diving into another discussion about, is it a complex carbohydrate or not? Or, you know, some are more satiating than others. And some, if you don't want it, if you want to feel fuller, you know, eat this throughout your day. Um, and my, my second question to this would be, you would mention as well about how, if you're going to move things around, you probably, one thing that you'll be consistently trying to get your athletes on is the protein. So for instance, if someone is cutting and you're going to reduce some calories and for anyone listening, just a broad, 
calories is, is the whole, and there's three uh, macronutrients with carbs, fats, and protein. So you can lower maybe carbs or fat, but you wouldn't touch the protein too much. You were saying very little anyways, and why that maybe might be. So I know this is, <laughs> sounds like two questions, but it could be freaking 25 minutes later. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, we could talk about um, the CCA, the satiation first, and then we can kind of get into the other. Yeah, so I think that when looking, ev evaluating specific macronutrient consume on its own, uh, protein tend to be the one with the highest satiety. First of all, uh, when we look at satiety, it's just like, you know, how much of your, uh, how full that you usually feel, right? So protein tend to be slightly higher, right? When eaten alone. However, as human beings, I think that practically we don't actually consume macronutrients, right? We consume food, right? We consume a bunch of other things together, right? And I do think that uh, going with that perspective, there are other things as well that contributes to satiety, right? So if you're trying to maximize satiety, you're trying to maximize food volume, right? So you want to look at things like vegetable intake as well. You mentioned complex carbohydrates, right? They're basically like carbohydrates with like slightly higher amount of uh, fiber content, which I know you mentioned about fiber. We'll probably go into that later. Uh, those would actually increase satiety as well. But given an in, on an individual basis, like I said, if you're going to, I think to frame this easily, what I tell people is that if you go for a, a buffet, right? If you're going to overeat, overeat on protein, right? So that's just why I tell people in general, uh, because uh, the likelihood of you uh, eating, overeating too many calories, provided that you're not the protein, uh, you're not eat, eating like Wagyu A5 beef, which is like 80% fat, right? You're going to get lesser calories for the amount of food you're getting if you're just eating chicken breast. And then that is uh, what I would say about satiety. But obviously there are other factors as well, right? When we look, talk about satiety, we talk about appetite regulation uh, and that's a whole another can of worms because like the palatability of a food as well would be something that plays a role, right? Like for example, protein is uh, like fried chicken, right? It's fat and protein, right? Uh, but that's also like fried deep fried with salt, right? It's going to be super tasty, which means that it increases the person, uh, eat, eat, it increases the probability of the person eating much, much more fried chicken compared to if you just eat rice cakes, which is just like pure carbohydrate sauce. So theoretically you say, oh, you know, carbohydrates uh, shouldn't be as, uh, uh, doesn't increase my satiety, but like I said, satiety is not the only factor or in that equation that helps you like regulate appetite and the reason why, you know, uh, I sort of like keep protein the same is because it's just easy, right? Like when we are, when I, when I do my nutrition coaching, we don't want too many moving parts. Essentially what we're looking at is that how, what am I going to eat, right? The things that I eat would impact how I sort of like lead my life, my meal prep, right? So if I can get this lifter to like meal prep the same protein amount throughout the entire week, and then they just vary their vegetables, that's great, right? Because they're still getting relatively good amount of protein in, they're still varying their food through vegetables and maybe swapping out their carbohydrates. But if I'm getting them to change everything every single day, there's a lot of moving parts and it's just difficult for people to stick to. So there's also that practical element right there that we need besides just thinking, oh, you know, theoretically this will work better, this will work better because while the science, you know, would say uh, this probably, uh, gi this gives you, uh, this gives you that effect, right? I think the role of the coach is to look at that effect and see how well can we translate that effect into the real world. You know, I, I recently put out a, a thread uh, that day on Instagram. I said that knowledge is actually uh, having a, a wide uh, breadth and depth of correct information, but wisdom is knowing how to apply or use. But wisdom requires action uh, in regards to those information. And I think that 
when it comes to coaching, right, it's a lot more wisdom than just knowledge, you know? So especially in the sense of powerlifting and sort of like powerlifting nutrition, because let's face it, right? We're not, it's not like rocket science, right? It's not, we're not coaching like NCAA, like football, like American football or the real football, right? Uh, Which I would like, or which you people easy. call it soccer, right? Easy, easy. Uh, yeah. So that which, which have more moving parts, right? So I think that we need a lot of wisdom when it comes to trying to apply certain concepts to the to a person. So I get, that's the kind of like the first part uh, when it comes to uh, that whole satiety thing. Uh, what's the the second part of the question? Well, um, in terms of if you're going to move some of those macronutrients around, is protein the one that you're going to move last? Like if you're going to if if you if someone approaches you and they need to do some cutting. And you know, and this is obviously catering towards powerlifters. And you have a powerlifter. Is it is protein going to be the one that you move the least down? And you're going to take a little more out of fat. You're going to take a little more out of carbohydrates. And why that might be? Yeah. So I think that the way you frame it is really good because you said for a powerlifter, which means that we have like a specific goal in mind, right? We have a purpose on why this, uh, why, why, why we are implementing certain nutritional changes so when it comes to power powerlifting we probably don't want to uh cause a, a loss in muscle mass right um, because muscle is uh you know muscle produces force right and uh, the, the force would move the weight right and a lot of people like being like being jacked anyway so i think that maintaining a certain level of muscle mass or doing powerlifting while you're while you're dieting is really important and the reason why i don't move the protein too much is because like i said you have that habitual aspect as well but then again reducing protein too low while you're in a deficit depending on the size of the deficit uh the length of the deficit uh, how lean the person is right might result in your body breaking down muscle for the energy required for your body to function so i don't really uh change that right and then we look at the ratio between carbohydrate and fat and because of the nature of the sport right uh uh re resistance training tend to be more geared towards uh carbohydrate metabolism using that to fuel the activity so we probably want sufficient amount of carbohydrates and then for fat in general i think a bare minimum of fat for general physiological functions to not go down the drain uh would be important and then the rest can be geared towards uh carbohydrate so when we look at it from the perspective of the impacts of each macronutrient protein would probably be the one looking at preservation of muscle mass carbohydrate will be the one uh looking at preservation of uh performance and then fat will be looking at preservation of uh day-to-day -day physiological functions so we look at the macronutrient and what quality in our body does it preserve and then we look at which one can we manipulate just to kind of like make the conversation a little bit more interesting uh i mentioned that there are cases where people have manipulated uh protein intake right and i think that you would be particularly fond of this as well because i know you're a big like uh mma junkie right so there's uh this uh there, there was this case study where uh i can't remember the, the i don't know whether to put the name of the box out because i don't think you can actually do it but relatively like uh maybe high level i don't know whether i don't know anything about boxing federations but you know probably like semi-professional boxer uh working with this uh like nutritionist slash researcher in one of the top universities in the UK. And what they did was the they outlined the strategy of making weight for this lifter, right? And this lifter just, uh, I mean, obviously they have a lot of much more sophisticated testing that a lot of powerlifters would have to, but they realized that based on the projection, they're not going to make weight uh, if they don't reduce his muscle mass because he's too heavy. So what they intentionally did was they got him to lose 
muscle mass, right? Uh, by reducing his protein intake just to make weight. And when they did that, right, they actually did scans and they actually saw the muscle, their muscle, the muscle mass of the boxer actually goes down, right? And then obviously the boxer made weight, he did relatively well. But that is also very dependent on the sport because looking at the scientific literature when it comes to boxing, right? Boxing as a part in the umbrella of combat sport is one that doesn't require as much body weight, right? It's more like striking. Whereas if you do judo or you do like jujitsu, your body weight plays a bigger role. So perhaps that boxer could actually uh, get by by losing some muscle mass, right? Because uh, if you're a, a skilled boxer, right? Because obviously boxing, you have points. I don't know the, the scoring system, but for example, like, uh, you know, like certain boxers, like Floyd Mayweather, they play more defensive and striking, right? So you can just win by that if you don't like get yourself knocked out by someone who's like bigger than you. So th- there's a skill component that probably weighs heavier than just being huge. So in that case, that boxer could go by by reducing muscle mass. But when it comes to powerlifting, you probably don't want that to happen because uh, your muscle generates force and force has to move weight, right? And uh, at this point, I'm not saying that we can actually uh, make a prediction that if you lose X amount of muscle, you will lose X amount of uh, kilos. But now, you know, you can just win by 0.5 grams, right? Because if you chip the record, you can win by just 0.5 grams. So uh, I'm not saying that we will be able to predict whether the amount of muscle mass you lose to make weight is actually worth the kilo sacrifice. But I'm just framing in the context. Like I said, it goes back to the function mm. of the, the sport and what you're trying to seek, right? So that's kind of a, a little bit of a fun story, I guess. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, for sure. And this is this is where we're, if people hear these anecdotal stories and they're like, well, it worked for him. Well, boxing relies heavily on speed, you know, movement, agility, and technique. Yeah, I mean, reading the play, just heart determination, whatever. It's not, it's far, it's not the same. And and you could be, you should listen to people like yourself in this field that are actually in your sports. So that's why we're focusing on powerlifting. Couple cool questions that I got here. So when when doing some of this manipulation, and then we'll get into maybe fiber and how that plays a role. Um, because Lane Norton's very big on fiber. But it opens the door for the question of how foods, what foods impact things like hormones? Can they be impacted by, you know, your diet if it gets too low? What one of the macronutrients, if it is one in particular, that could start affecting hormones, et cetera? And um, also thoughts on juniors and sub-juniors when it comes to to nutrition and dieting again it's generalized statements um i mean a junior for us could be a 22 year old and you'll have 22 year olds who <laughs> do who uh are extremely muscular and huge and they're not like a tw- you know they're not young by any means right so it kind of depends case case by case but um but yeah let's talk about maybe a little bit about how how some of the foods might affect you yeah, so I think uh, hormonal levels in terms of resistance training as well is quite hard to tease out. I think that primarily when we look at uh, hormones, uh, uh, for males, we are concerned with testosterone, right? And uh, literature have kind of like investigated that whether high amounts of fat or low amounts of fat versus carbohydrates uh, impacts testosterone. But what they actually shown uh, so far, at least the general consensus is that if you have low fat and low carbohydrates, which usually result in low energy availability, that reduces your testosterone, which means uh, that if you're dieting too hard, right, uh, 
right? and you have both of those amount really low, right? Then your testosterone would be impacted, right? So that tends to be the, the hormone that's concerned, uh, prim primary concern for males. Um, and in terms of females, right, things it's usually like reproductive hormones that are the things that usually uh matter, right? I'm not an expert on female physiology, so I really, really can't comment much about that. But I do know that uh there's something called like relative uh, red S, right? So relative energy deficiency syndrome, right? Or, or a lot of things where basically that the the, the amount of energy that a uh, person is consuming, right? It's just not enough to sustain like whatever they're doing, right? And it tends to be more prominent in in females, right? So those are things that people can, you know, look look up, right? Just, I mean, if you Google like red S, uh, like say re relative energy uh, deficiency uh, syndrome or symptoms, right? You find a host of literature. Uh, I, I said I, I don't want to comment too much because when it comes to this, is actually really uh, I wouldn't say it's a sensitive topic, but the impact of it is quite significant. You know, so mm. uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that well versed in that. And you can find people out there who, uh, who are, but like I said, but but like I said, those are the primary, uh things that people are concerned with. And when I speak to my lifters, I think what for me, what I need to know as a nutrition coach, when I coach my female lifters, I would generally ask them, uh, do you still have your regular uh, cycle, right? So that is usually what I ask, okay? Uh, and then if they say no, then it's probably they're like, uh, I would see that, oh, are you really lean? You know, if you're really lean, then okay, cool. Perhaps you're in that state, right? Uh, obviously I would look at the literature and I look at, a, at certain signs, but and then we will look at ways to kind of like balance that between your competitive goals and your general health outcomes. Uh, and then some people would say uh, that I I've been like that for like the past X amount of years, right? And then uh, I'm seeing my doctor, you know. So you know, regardless of whether and if they have like medical advice, then I'm like, cool, just let me just continue seeing your doctor, right? Like I said, once you have medical advice, my kind of like my scope and practice ends there. So. Mm. It tends to be a, a little bit more uh yeah female female physiology especially when it comes to hormones is a little bit more uh the nature of that the nature of that is a little bit more sensitive so i i yeah and i'm not confident to on on sharing anything about that at this current moment uh because like i said lack of ex expertise and every, everybody i coach i in, i look at a case by case basis and when someone just when i ask them uh you know ask the female lifters that I coach do you still have your uh, menstruation I'm like crossing my fingers. I said, please say yes, you know, <laughs> and yeah, most of them actually of say yes. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's basically how it is. Yeah. Um, and, and what are your thoughts on like, again, juniors in our sport is 18 and right up to like a 23 year old. So it's, we're talking about adults, young adults. So a young adult cutting, it is what it is in, in, in our sport, there's been discussion, like should sub juniors, cut now here's the thing like you had mentioned i'm an i'm an mma fan boxing fan and i have buddies who wrestled all through high school and if you're familiar with high school wrestling and wrestling period super duper weight cuts and you know like weight class sports in high school there's tons of them that you yeah you would you would weight cut and i you follow boxing you got boxers who are amateurs and, um, you know, all the different weight classes that you have in boxing and, and they did weight cuts all throughout some of these kids. I'm not saying you should do this, but box when they're, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old and all through high school, et cetera. Um, so is it, 
is it something that people should be thinking about? Like, should sub juniors be cutting or if they are, how aggressive of a cut can really affect your hormones? You know, or is this actually a rare thing? You have to be very lean body mat, body fat to, to actually see hormones have an issue. And, um, and it's not that common. And then that's where it might be like, look at if, that's when you got to start having maybe some breaks on and you're, you're too, you're far too young. I mean, I don't even think there's a good age necessarily to be messing with hormones like that, but we got sports like bodybuilding where they get ungodly ripped and shredded and low body fat and they do it repeatedly for, for years. But yeah, well, what are your thoughts on that? And then again, I know this is out of your expertise in terms of hormones and whatnot. So put the brakes on if you want to and be like, okay, this, you know, yeah. I, I think it's interesting. So might be an unpo unpopular op opinion, but you know, Gaston or whoever in the IPF, if you're listening, right? I think that there should be no weight classes for sub juniors, right? Like no oh. weight classes at all. Yeah. So I, yeah. So that is my opinion. You know, like weight classes are the reasons why people cut. Find a proper like you find another way. You know, find a way they can score objectively how well these lifters are doing, and then uh that is a much, much better. Like what's the difference between a lift, uh, like the health outcome of a lifter, right? Being 70 kilos versus 68 would be different if there's a weight class in between and the lifter consistently have to meet that weight class, right? Like, but if you just remove all weight class and put it into a formula, I, I don't think that the difference would be that significant if you evaluate 69 versus 70 kilos, right? But if you have that 69.5 kilo cutoff mark, Right, that would cause people to be, oh yeah, cool. I have to keep being in this weight class lower, you know. Uh, so I think that sub juniors develop so quickly, you don't want to hamper their growth. So my personal opinion is that there should be no weight classes for sub juniors at all. Right, <laughs> find a coefficient to score it. And you know, I I had this conversation with, with Pete Spence uh, before, right? I know Pete he Spence is not in the stories. I think. Um, yeah. So I I said that you know there should be no weight classes for sub juniors, but I know you're not a big fan of coefficients, but. Unfortunately, I think that that is the bullet we have to bite if we are looking to preserve uh, the health, uh, the long-term health of these lifters, right? So the, no, do the, you, the, let's hang in there for one sec because that's an interesting, uh, that's interesting. Do you think it is that problematic though? Or is this like on the fringes where the very extreme are going to be sub-juniors? Like I do, I because- I don't necessarily see, I, I'm not saying it can't be an issue for a sub juniors, but is it such a big prevalent problem? You have to do a mass major move, like taking weight classes, because what I would say is there, there's always going to be people in the fringes that are going to have issues that are, it'll be a tipping point. How many, how impactful compared to how many people participate and then compare that to the impact of having no weight classes I think it is a big deal. Like, I, I honestly feel like if you're a lifter, I think you would be far less popular a sport for anybody in those ages when it's just straight up walking in and it's all dots or IPF points, et cetera, and there's no head-to-head -head clashes like you see in the open, like they're used to seeing in the open. Um, I think that would actually impact the participation rate, which might impact overall the growth of the sport. So when you do it, it's it's, it's a big it's a big decision. So then that, that's why my follow-up, if I didn't think it was big, I, it, I I got you. But I think it really would greatly impact it. Cause my, and so then the follow-up would be, if you're going to do something crazy impactful, how often are juniors severely 
damaging their hormones or damaging themselves or, you know, even mentally creating issues. Like how prevalent an issue is it in the sub junior category? Cause we do have weight classes that we have to do something that drastic. I, yeah, and so, I know actually there's no study on how, how there's no study on this. We're just guessing how prevalent yeah. an issue it is. Especially, in, especially in powerlifting. But I think that if we can look at certain literature, right. From the combat sports, right. Which uh, a lot of my, the reason why I'm so familiar with uh, this area of research, despite clearly not looking like a combat athlete, you know, I, I barely look like a powerlifter or anybody who lifts, but... Uh, oh, stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> you look great. And Until I put my toothbrush in with my towel on. But, That's right. Uh, but, yeah, they have there, there has been literature done in combat sports lifters where they showed that the uh, younger lifters, especially females, they tend to cut, uh, they tend to cut uh, more and also they tend to cut worse Right, which is no surprise. Uh, if you look at the time amount you have, or even the access you have when you're young, you probably go on the internet and just look at some random guy or some random YouTube video teaching you how to cut. Right, whereas you don't, whereas people who are in the sport and have matured in the sport for longer, they probably have one experience in the belt and probably uh, access to higher level coaching. Right, younger people tend not to have that. Whether that's uh not seeing the importance of it or whether that is a financial or uh, social economic reason for them to access those uh, resources, right? But we do see that uh, younger lifters, they tend to have uh, worse cuts, right? And they tend to try to cut more as well uh, in, in, in the combat sports literature, particularly in females. And then the, the question now is that my, uh, the impact on the weight classes, right? I, I'm not saying that I have a solution, right? So I, I'm this is like a bold claim and this is what I feel. Uh, but I do think that like, I don't see like, you know, if you are like, I think what you're saying is that you want to see the, those matchups, right? So my my question is like, if this lifter is 70 kilos, right? Versus a lifter that's 69, right? I, it goes back to the whole like, okay, we can just use a very recent example, right? The Austin Perkins, Taylor Edward, right? Thing, because the USA PL is 75 kilos. The, back in the day when USA PL was IPF was 74. Is there going to be a difference that much in terms of their, when you use a formula in terms of their score, if you use a weight class, they technically would not be in the same weight class, right? Which means Austin, I mean, Austin has a had a phenomenal performance, like below the 82.5 kilos of weight. But let's just say in another situation that like Russ was Russ was there and Russ totals like freaking 890 or something. Then Austin is like, cool, 850, you know, but you're still in one weight class higher. But if you just use the dots and compare, you can compare that matchup. So my proposal is that why don't we just use a formula, right? And just let people... Like if you are in this dots, for example, if you fall within this dots bracket, you compete at the same time. You know, it's kind of like Sheffield, but Sheffield, you look at the percentage of the world record. I, like I said, it's not a perfect solution, but I do think that a lot of this uh, weight cutting thing, they step from a really young age and then they think that it is a necessary part of the sport, right? Uh, that, And then when they go into the, sub, they go into the juniors, then they, that, that thought of, okay, cool, I have to be light remains in them. But if you look at the development of or growth as a human in general, when you're a sub-junior to even when you're like 25 years old in the open, that is like your prime for growth. First of all, uh, most, uh, you know, you probably just eat, train and sleep or go to school and you're just starting work. Uh, so that is like the prime time for you to grow, right? If we say that weight cutting is not a necessary part of the sport at a young age, I don't know if sub-juniors, sorry, Sub juniors going into the juniors would think that they still have to cut weight for juniors. So that is kind of like, uh, it's like a whole sociological question, right? Like, what is the norm 
in that uh, in that era? And do people think that weight classes matter because the norm has already been established since they're young? And if we get rid of that norm, what would things look like in uh that's the counterfactual I, I would pose, I guess. So I don't really have an answer, but I just know that weight, uh, com uh, MMA or combat sport uh, athletes, they tend to do worse cuts when they're younger and they tend to cut more. Uh, and like I said, there's this whole eating disorder uh, or disordered eating symptoms that would, would, would present itself, especially males get them as well, uh, but it's more prominent in females. And that is... I wouldn't like I would I don't want to be alarmist and say it's concerning, but the growth of female powerlifting is definitely taking off and it's really exciting. You know, people always say the female weight classes are so much more exciting than the men. And to an extent, I would have to agree, right? And which is why there's also a slight uh slight concern for me on like what what is the message we're trying to send out, right? And you you are I know you're a big fan of like said uh MMA, right? There there even were uh people trying to kind of like ban rapid weight cutting, right? From combat sports or find a way to regulate it because they said in, according to the, uh, WADA, right? There are, according to WADA, they will prohibit something that if it meets two of these three criterias, one, it enhances performance, two, it endangers an athlete's health, and three, it violates the spirit of sport. And the authors of like, that sort of like scientific paper or that petition saying that, rapid weight cutting fulfills all three of these criteria imposed by WADA. So they're trying to find a way to uh, find some way to either get rid of weight, rapid weight cutting or trying to regulate it more tightly because fighters do like insane amount of cuts, right? And people do glorify that to an extent, right? You know, like you hear commentators like Joe Rogan and they're like, oh my gosh, this person cut so much, blah, 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 blah. And like when interviewing fighters, people, actually, the fighters actually even feel that the bigger the cut they do, all right, they do and they, are successful they already feel like they've won the battle if they know they've done it more than the other person when they weigh in you know so like it's also a psychological thing so i feel like there's always going to be an argument that someone can provide and push back but it's very different when you're dealing with like 14 year olds because i think in the ipf the youngest you can compete is as 14 right and if we can get rid of the norm that there are weight classes when you're that young i'm not sure what how people would approach that when they go to juniors, right? So, because, uh, you know, people always say like when you're young, you just want to play sport and just kick the ball around. Some people don't really care. Uh, so I'm not sure how removing that norm would actually impact uh, people of that age, especially if we can frame competitiveness in another way. You know, maybe like if I can compete with my, with my friend who is as strong as me uh, by formula, but he's a different weight class, you know, like would that be good, right? Like I know I'm a small 15 year old Asian dude right which I was back in the day but then I can compete my 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 buddy who's like an American guy who's like 100 kilos and I'm like 60 we can compete at the same time because according to our formula we are relatively around the same score and then I can like beat him you know will that actually make things more competitive I don't know but that's I think that's a thought that we can kind of entertain not sure I'm not even sure whether this would change anything but that's just how I feel about the situation that's an idea it's a discussion it's a good discussion um in, in yeah, it's not a bad idea. You, you always need to keep having discussions, right? Yeah. Here's something that is an idea that I've seen in other sports, like combat sports happens, for instance, because you do need, like, in a combat sport, for instance, wrestling, submission wrestling, jujitsu, whatever. If you didn't have weight classes, you would kill the sport because the bigger man is going to win usually. You know, if you got a heavyweight wrestler, well, that's going to be your champion. 
you know, or 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 whatever. Same with boxing or or whatever. A lot of these combat sports, but what they do at a more local level, when they don't have the participation rate that they would ordinarily have at a higher level. So people are signing up, and it's not like powerlifting where if you Kedrick don't have someone in your weight class. We can have you compete anyways. You just hit the platform, go for PRs, period. All good. And you could still can compete your numbers against your buddy on the other side of the world if you like. So it's not a write-off either. You get ranked, et cetera. But in a combat sport, you need someone to go against. So here's what they do. And here's an idea that might kind of work with you. 20 people show up. You have no, you have a relative idea of weight classes, but 20 people show up and they all just weigh in. They have written ahead of time, people within 10 pounds of each other are going to form a weight class. You don't know when you're walking in the athlete. You don't know what everybody else is going to weigh in. Total crapshoot. Do you want to cut like crazy? Go ahead, cut like crazy. You might still be in the same freaking weight class and you kill yourself cutting, destroy your performance. And then, oh, by the way, you still got fined. And, and it's same day weigh-ins. So you're probably not going to kill yourself weight cutting when you actually have to fight someone two hours after weighing in and oh by the way the weight class wasn't established you didn't know where the cluster of the 10 people were going to weigh in so you or the the five people that were going to weigh in within 10 pounds of each other so you might have put yourself through hell hampered your performance and literally get knocked the fuck out for nothing it's a floating weight class idea it actually keeps the weight class principles so you are actually competing within 10 pounds of each other or whatever you deem to be fair and competitive. So it keeps a head to head, no formulas head to head, but it's floating. And you say ahead of time, we're going to try for five weight classes, but if there's not enough people, we're going to have three weight classes because it's more competitive because maybe the people in the front, whatever, you know, you, you just work with what you've got. Maybe people are more clustered within three weight classes on the day of fine. We'll go for that. But as long as you're within, and they even have rules that if you show up and you're just way too much bigger than the uh, the next possible weight, in this case, they're like, well, we're not, you're not going to compete because we're not going to throw you in the ring so you beat up some guy half your size. In powerlifting, if that happens, okay, well, you will compete and it'll be the case where you're just going to compare your numbers to your friend on the other side of the world. It's fine. Numbers are numbers, gravity's gravity. It's all good. This might be an idea. Um, and I, I, it kind of works with what you said and see what happens when you have conversation Two people disagree, but we get there somehow through conversation. And you know what? I swear to God, I didn't even have this worked out in my head until you kept bringing up um, the combat sports, which I enjoy. And I really, you know, this is what they do. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes we learn from other sports. Like you, you were saying, you learned a lot of these issues from other sports and what they do. And, and sometimes we learn the solutions to the issues they already had. And in this case, they had that issue in it. I don't know. I don't know. Again, we're just spitball and there's no right and wrong. Who knows what the impact yep. would be? And 100%. if we could, we throw this in there, literally destroy the participation rate, murder to the sub junior class. And Gaston's like, thanks gentlemen. Amazing. Now we just lost high school sports or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> so whatever, we're just spitballing. Uh, we got a little off topic here, but we'll, we'll, we'll round it back. Um, do we, do we wrap up on uh, the nutrition part before we got into that section? Yeah. We have a half. Okay. Perfect. 
maybe then we can get, yes, yes, we did. I think actually maybe then let's get into a little bit. We were focusing a lot about um, protein, but I do want to talk a little bit about fiber and its role with carbohydrates. And I had listened to Lane Norton on Andrew Huberman, super duper popular podcast. Um, seen some posts on Lane can't be positive enough about fiber. Um, you know, you, you essentially, I mean, I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing here and you could dive in, but you can almost not get enough of fiber. It's so good for you in terms of reducing the risk of cardiovascular illness and cancer. You know, fiber is, is so potent and you throw that in there with, and, and what it does when it's present with carbohydrates. Um, so maybe let's touch up on this. The importance of fiber, it's something that it's a micronutrient, not a macro. And maybe something that a lot of us don't really pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, fibers. I guess if you would make me say overrated or underrated, I'll definitely say within powerlifters, highly underrated. Uh, I think that powerlifters has uh, really not all right. Don't want to lump everybody in the same uh, basket. But powerlifters, they tend to have really poor fiber intake. Uh, and you know, I think that I would even say that the rise of it fit if it fits your macros, right? Could potentially play a role in that because people think that that is the only thing that's important. Uh, but one thing that we have to remember is that if it fits your macros was something that was primarily created for, I mean, not created, but the idea was developed for people who are trying to uh, seek body mass changes, right? Usually uh, within the body, you know, back in those bodybuilding forum days, where people just like talk about stuff, you know, the band August days, you know, Eric Helms and Abelthu Nunes talking on like bodybuilding.com forums. Uh, and it was like primarily catered towards physical athletes. But the thing with this is that if you notice when it comes to physical uh, athletes, right, uh, like for example, Eric, who's recently just, who's actually going to compete again this weekend on, on the stage, shout out to uh, Eric Helms. Uh, like they diet down to such a lean, uh, lean, uh, yeah, lean body weight, right? That, the amount of calories they have to consume to be at their body weight is so low that if they don't consume fiber, you'll just be starving them, starving the entire day, right? So they just smash a whole bunch of food, uh, fibrous uh, foods into their diet, right? Whether that's fruits, whether that's their carbohydrate sources, has to be like potatoes or like oats because they have fiber or increasing vegetables, things like that. So they're dieting down, they're using if it fits your macros, right? But they're also having a lot, a lot of fiber. Whereas you have the powerlifters, who most of them do not even diet down to, to anywhere close to that lean, right? And they just feed their macros and they just say, yeah, cool, Pop-Tarts and, Pop and fried chicken, you know? Like, <laughs> literally no fiber at all, right? So I think that just the nature of the two different uh, endeavors or two different sports, right, uh, would creates that, uh, creates one uh, approach to, uh, sorry, uh, one sport has the the side effect of uh if it fits your macros, which is not having fiber, whereas the other doesn't because just because of the nature of that, that sport. So I think that that is uh something I would say in the politing population. So when it comes to fiber, I think that uh obviously I I mean Lane Lane is highly well educated and I mean he's you know massive massive on podcast. So I think that when he says. Uh, you can't have enough fiber. He also means to a certain subset of population might be just a uh, uh, hyperbole to say that fiber is really important because one thing we know is that if you eat way too much fiber, like you literally crap your pants, right? If you don't believe me, just try eating like six Quest bars in one sitting, right? So I think that the amount of fiber consumption in one sitting, uh, 
whether it's sorry the amount of whether it's too much or not depends on how much you consume at one go right if you eat way too much fiber at one go you 100% go to the bathroom right like mm. uh, i've i literally consumed 200 grams of like oats raw oats before like cuz i'm like okay cool i had literally nothing i ran out of rice uh, at home you know no carbohydrate sauce the only sauce i had was oats so i'm like but oats also because of the content right of weight right sorry like weight to carbohydrates uh is lesser than if you eat rice so like rice 100 grams of rice probably give you around 70 80 grams of carbs whereas oats is probably like 40 it's like almost half that amount so if i want to hit my macros i needed like double the amount of what i would eat so i just ate like 200 grams of raw oats right i mean i cooked it but i weighed 200 grams like three hours later bathroom straight away you know i'm like because the the fiber content in oats is like a lot and like say if you don't believe me eat like five quest bars at this at one sitting i can guarantee you go to the bathroom right obviously uh so that is one thing right but like i said uh it's funny because fiber really really does have a lot of like uh health benefits especially when it comes to cardiovascular diseases right um it it, it has like very very strong correlations when eating higher amounts of fiber right they actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular diseases and i think one thing one thing that is also very interesting is that a lot of these fiber-rich foods, they also tend to be rich in other nutrients, other micronutrients, fruits, right? Vegetables, high in antioxidants, right? So if you're eating all of this, I'm not saying that fiber itself uh, is the main factor, right? Perhaps it is. I don't know. I haven't really looked that much into it. But because like, for example, you can just eat like uh, psyllium husk, right? Which is like really just fi fiber by itself to increase your fiber intake. Most people usually use that for like constipation, but I don't know if you substitute all your vegetables, right? And all your com complex carbohydrates with psyllium husk only, will you still get the benefits of uh, the cardiovascular, uh, reduction in cardiovascular diseases? Because in general, a lot of this kind of stuff is like anything that's like cardiovascular disease, it's very much over a long period of time, right? Like mm. you eat a bunch of this, you smoke for a bunch of time, then they do like, uh, uh, they, they look at a, a cohort of population and they look at their risk over time. And I don't think it's actually possible to, or someone to not eat any fruits, vegetables, oats, and only eat like psyllium husk as their primary source of fiber because that would be really sad. Just, yeah, it's just a sad diet. Because uh, psyllium husk essentially is like sawdust. You just imagine just eating sawdust, right? For, for your fiber source. So that would yeah, suck so totally bad. True. So, yeah. So I think that uh, fiber, right, is really, really important. Uh, I like, hi, like high blood lipids as well, right? Is a reduction in high blood lipids from fiber is actually. I would say, I don't want to say proven like like a fact, like gravity, you know, but links are really, really strong. Uh, and it, it's actually really, really funny because even if you go back into the day, right? Like back in the year 300, 300 BC, right? Hi Hippocrates said that wholemeal bread makes larger poop than refined bread. You know, even back in the day, right? Uh, when Hippocrates, back in the, the, the ancient this. Greek day. Yeah, like Hippocrates, like, like knows that you know, if you eat more wholemeal bread, which has more fiber, it will make your like poop larger. Which means that, yeah, cool. If you have constipation, you probably want to eat wholemeal bread, even though they probably don't have the concept of like fiber, right? So, fiber in terms of heart health, right? Lower, low, lowering like blood lipids, right? Bowel health, uh, is actually really, really, really important. And then, I know that you mentioned a little bit about gut microbiome, so we talk about that. But uh, fiber essentially because it uh it provides like an environment for good bacteria to grow as well. Whether what that bacteria is, how that how that impacts stuff, I 
I, I don't really know. People don't really, in fact, I don't think many people know uh, as well. Uh, at least they can't say it with certainty, uh, but it does provide a good environment for good bacteria to grow. So all of these things that fiber plays a role makes it so underrated when it comes to, uh, yeah, uh, like say power powerlifting. And in fact, like I said, there, there, there are research out there, even though I think that it's very, like right now it's the stages of infancy and it's like inconclusive, showing that, you know, gut microbiome plays a role in like Men mental health and depression. I'm not saying that it is. I'm not saying that if you eat fiber, it will cure you with a depression, right? But just how like linked the body is, I wouldn't be surprised if it does. But I'm saying that right now, there is some preliminary research looking into that, but the evidence is not strong as of now. Uh, mm -hmm. So, but there's the things that there's no harm in consuming fiber unless you're consuming 200 grams of oats or six Quest bars in one row, then make sure your toilet's empty the next three hours because anytime you might just repaint the toilet brown. Hey dog, I'm gonna take this challenge, all right? Because like you keep saying it, and I feel like you're challenging me directly. And all right, so I'm taking the quest bar challenge. Um, in terms of, uh, is there actually any? I don't know if you know about this, but in terms of fighting cancers, or is it does it reduce the risk of cancer as well? I think cancer studies are so interesting. Like I said, I'm not an oncologist or anything like that, but people who like or people who look sure. at cancer, but like, I said that when you consume food, like fruits and vegetables that are rich in fiber, they also tend to be really potent antioxidants, right? So that itself may reduce the risk of cancer. I don't know, right? But we know that there's a role that antioxidant plays in regulating all of these like functions, right? Because essentially like cancer cells are like uncontrollable growth of cell, right? And uh, probably caused by some form of uh, oxidative damage that cells damage and then just have uncontrollable growth. And if you have high amounts of antioxidant, does it regulate that? Maybe, you know, but there are also a host of other factors, right? I'm not going to say that, oh, if you smoke 50 sticks of cigarette a day, right? You're going to, you have, you're going to eat like 500 grams of fiber and then that offsets your lung cancer. You know, like I, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, too much of a claim uh, to make, which I don't think it's even that. It'd be an interesting like, service to offer online though. Yeah. I'm I mean, just make, saying make, there's, 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 there's money for it and and we'll talk about a promo code later. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, so I, I think that that is uh the thing that yeah, I think that that is basically the the links, right? I like I said when we when we have conversations like this, I uh, I think it's quite reductionist and I don't blame people for having the this mindset because it's easier, right? Uh, but like I said, we don't eat protein, we don't eat carbs, we don't eat fat, we don't eat fiber, we eat food. Right. Mm. And yeah. when we look at fiber, we look at the food source that the fiber is coming from. And then in the grand scheme of things, how does this create an environment that will lead you to more positive outcomes? Because at the end of the day, uh, it's always a balance, right? Between uh the outcome we're seeking versus the negative, right? Which is why certain interventions that we do, we have to weigh like what is the trade-off, right? Like uh it's like economics, right? What what's the opportunity cost of eating this? Like if I eat a bunch of this, right, what is the negative impact of it and thus is the negative impact if any worth the benefit that i would gain obviously the benefit has to outweigh the negative impact so you have a net positive because if it's a net negative like why would you want to do it at all right so it's trying to like create that environment that produces uh, a net positive outcome uh and i think that that's a role like dietary fiber plays right high amounts of vitamins minerals uh in certain types of food micronutrients uh Anti antioxidants, they all are contained in fiber-rich foods. And then, you know, uh, perhaps 
there are also things that relate specifically to like cardiovascular disease, uh, blood lipids and all that. But when you eat foods that are high in fiber, you get a host of other benefits as well uh, that comes along with it. Um, and I should also say, I think Lane did also address if you have too much fiber, <laughs> there is that side effect. Um, so I don't, I, I'm paraphrasing and I'm leaving so, some out. Sorry, Lane, if I butchered what you had said. But uh, also wanted to ask you about in terms of fiber and when it's what makes up the complex carbohydrate. And does that actually help in terms of sati satiation when it's a complex carbohydrate as opposed to like some people talk about? And this is, kind of layman's terms, but you'll hear people say, look, when I if I sit down and my, I'm having pasta, is there anything behind beyond, and it might just be the taste of it, but is there anything beyond just, I feel like I can eat and eat and eat and not get full. And, but if you have complex carbohydrates and there's fiber in it, is there something there that it would be more difficult for your body to break down and you'll feel more satiated due to that? Or is this more, as you had said earlier, we don't know about any linkage like that, but you probably enjoy the taste of pasta and don't enjoy the taste of a bowl of vegetables. You know, it, what are your thoughts on that? Do we know? Yeah, I think that there is something about looking at... All right, so I'm just going to like put this out there to help people think about food in general, right? And I, I, I like to use this concept of uh right, it's not obviously I didn't I didn't invent it, but I think that this is a very good concept to think about things. Once is is that when you look at all the, of this, do I eat something? Right. If I eat something, uh how does it make me feel? Right. So we have that kind of like uh intuitive sense of of things, right? And then when we look at all these like uh, epidemiological studies, right, there's like a statistical significance, you know, like a correlation, right? If I eat X amount, I feel less hungry. Right. So that's one, you have the statistical slash correlation uh, significance right there. But then the next thing you, is you look into is that what are the mechanisms that are at play, right? And I don't think you can kind of like tease out the the difference, but you look at it from the mechanistic point of view versus the, like I said, if it creates some form of correlation that is like positive, right? For example, uh, like for example, smoking, right? Smoking people who have smoked that they will have lung cancer, right? But then, uh, that then you also have the the mechanisms on why like those specific substances affect the lungs, right? So you have those two, right? So those two together create like a really really strong link. So when it comes to eating, I think that we can use very similar a similar thought process regarding that, right? If I eat certain foods, right? Am I? We start obviously with the mecha the mechanisms, right? That would potentially gives us give us the, give us the outcome of feeling full, okay? So like I said, more fiber and all that. However, some, like I said, when we do like scientific research, a lot of times we base things on average and some people might not fall into that, you know, that wide range of that average that people would actually feel that impact. But then you have that other side as well. Do Am I feeling my actual practical experience of the quote-unquote mechanism that's involved? And if you have both at the same time, right, the mechanism is sound and then you're getting the practical impact, then great, right? That works really well for you. But I think that you have to go back to the point where am I really experiencing this? Because like I said, uh, technically, you know, certain foods like potatoes, people will consider as like simple carbohydrates, right? So in that sense, they should be uh, 
like they should be less filling, but because potatoes are so like rich in fiber, right? Like, and when I say potatoes, I mean like potatoes itself, not like chips, right? Uh, people mm-hmm. actually can't eat a lot of potatoes. So that's an example. And then like I said, there's also hyperpalatability of food, right? How tasty the food is, right? Uh, if you put potatoes with like, I don't know, like checkered potatoes and all that, you probably can eat more than you just, if you just eat a boiled potatoes, right? For example. Uh, so those are, those are ways you can think about food. And I do think that, uh, sorry, uh, rephrase, like potatoes are not simple carbs. They're like high, higher GI carbohydrates, right? So like it spikes the quote unquote insulin more and people say higher GI carbs tend to make people hungrier because simple carbohydrates tend to be higher GI. But that's the thing, like there's always an exception, exception to the rule. And I think when it comes to humans, right? I'm not saying that everybody would have exceptions to the rule, but there will be certain things that just doesn't suit us as well, right? Uh, like for me, I can eat a whole bunch of pasta because I, for some reason, I just find, I just really like pasta. So I can just eat more of it compared if I were to eat something else. So taste preference matters as well. But we start off from uh, like a sound explanation on the mechanisms behind it, right? And then we then evaluate if our experience of what the supposed feeling we should derive from whatever we're eating actually lines up. And if we don't, we just like kind of fine tune it. So that there's, oh, there's that gap between the science and the practice. And as much as we want to, we want to try to close that gap. Uh, and sometimes it helps to have a, like a nutrition coach help you answer some of these questions, right? Because when we are doing our own thing, we'll be like, oh no, the internet says this. Why am I not, why am I not getting this impact? Uh, is there something wrong with me? But then again, I'll tell people the internet also says that everything gives you cancer. You know, if you Google anything, anything probably gives you cancer, you know? So, you know, uh, that's why sometimes it helps for someone to just like tell you, speak to you about stuff and then try to breach the gap. Um, In terms of some things that might not align. Now, here's something that always boggles my mind and I want to ask you about. Sweeteners. How is it, for instance, stevia? Tastes amazing. Tastes like sugar. And we all know what sugar can do. What are we looking at when we look at it? like something like a sweetener, aspartame, stevia, et cetera, where you can sweeten your coffee with it. You can sweeten foods with it or whatever, drinks, et cetera. You know, you can have Diet Cokes, Diet Pepsis, et cetera. You can have sweeteners that replace something as big as sugar, but yet it'll give you no, no calories. Um, how... How is that? How is that? And what do the, you know, we could start there and then we could talk about whether or not they're healthy or, or some pros and cons or, you know, while talking about sweeteners. Because this is something yeah. that, um, yeah, on the surface level, I don't, I think a lot of people don't understand. And I know not all sweeteners are the same. Stevia is not aspartame. And, and some of these have been maligned by media and uh in certain media personalities and others like like you know i've been like look there's nothing to see here yeah i think that i think that the thought of linking like calories to to taste is actually like kind of like a false uh it's not it's a false it's a misconception right because i do think that your taste uh like our tongues our taste about function as like chemoreceptors what I mean by that, it's not that our tongues would be able to sense who's having chemotherapy or not. That's not what I mean, right? Because we talk about cancer. I'm not saying that, you know, chemoreceptors 
it means that our tongue, right, have like we we sense uh there are certain chemicals that triggers a response to the brain, right? And then the brain sends out that signal uh of taste, right? So uh, that is kind of like uh how 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 taste kind of works, right? Like sweetness is a taste, right? So uh there's something called like the uh, gustatory complex, which is linked, which is in our cerebral cortex, right? And so that is function, like it, it functions to process taste. So there's also uh, some science papers or incidences out there where people have like damage to their brain and then they lost their sense of taste, right? So that shows that taste is not intrinsic to to food, right? Or like things that are calories. Mm -hmm. Because like, let's just say if you, you, you bite a coin, right? You bite a coin, you get that taste of like whatever, like copper or iron. And if you eat like, for example, like, a liver or like uh like something that's like a little bit more bloody bloody you get the same like irony taste right but mm. clearly like coins are not food right so it's not taste is not really linked to food per se right it's actually the signal that our tongue receives sending it to our brain and then we we get that uh we get that that, that sense of sweetness so the thing with uh artificial sweeteners right so Stevia is not an artificial sweetener because Stevia is like a net is that natural sweetener right from the plant from a plant usually found like South Africa uh, South uh, America, right? The, the reason why it doesn't con uh, create, sorry, it doesn't have calories is because our body doesn't metabolizes it in our body. It's just like how if you eat something, right, that has the, like, let's just say if you eat like something that's really, really bloody, you know, like uh, there's certain cultures, like people have like, they eat like blood sausages, right? So they, they tend to have like slightly higher iron taste, right? But if you eat the blood sausage, right, you have, you'll get the calories because obviously it contains other stuff that can be metabolized by our body. But if you like accidentally swallow a, a coin, a copper coin, you will not get calories on the copper coin because you just like literally poop it out because your body doesn't metabolize it. So uh, stevia, like aspartame, saccharine, sucralose, right? Uh, these are the categories of like non-nutritive sweeteners, right? Because we call it non-nutritive because uh, stevia is not artificial, right? Uh, and they basically, what happens is that when you consume them, it, it sends out the same uh, it triggers the same chemoreceptors in our tongue, right? Send us the same signal, but our body going into our body does, doesn't get metabolized like how sugar does. So that's how you get the effect of uh, the sweetness without the calories. And I think something to push back against you is that I'm sure people will uh, disagree with you and say that stevia tastes like poop. Not, not literal poop, but it tastes really bad because you said that stevia tastes great. But I know some people will say like stevia is literally the worst tasting thing ever. Uh, so uh, yeah, I know people will dispute that claim. <laughs> Oh god. Well, first off, that is fascinating. It's that's a really good example you used in terms of look at like if you lick a battery, you could taste it, but you gained zero calories. And if you consume that coin that tastes like licking a battery, you will taste it, but you will gain zero calories from it in your body's because your body can't break it down or isn't going to break it down. Um, on the flip side, you eat something with a lot of iron, might taste kind of similar tasting and your body can consume it so essentially you're ingesting something like uh aspartame or stevia and th the you're tasting it but your body's not breaking it down and and, and using it into like storing it whether for body fat or putting on muscle mass etc i guess my follow-up question so that, that was actually very well explained and thank you because I, I swear to god i've wondered this forever like this <laughs> is a cheat code there's no way this is real this is baloney <laughs> So here's my follow-up question, although, which is interesting. What does our body do with it? Is it just, I guess it's just excess waste? Yeah. I mean, like anything that our body cannot metabolize is just excess waste, right? 
So the, the thing is that it's not only like certain stuff our body have, like it has to excrete regardless, you know, like we can't store, for example, like nitrogen, right? Nitrogen, which is found in protein, doesn't really get stored in our body, you know? So like we tend to excrete more like nitrogen, right? Obviously carbohydrates, you know, and all of that, they get easily converted into, it, it's either like stored in our body as muscle glycogen, right? Or like, or fats that are like, uh, consume, you know, like it's stored in our body easily, right? Whereas like protein isn't as, uh, nitrogen isn't stored. So we excrete nitrogen more, right? So things like this. So like all of these compounds, right? They are not, they are not the only thing that doesn't get stored in our body. There are a whole bunch of other stuff. For example, fiber doesn't get stored out by our body as well. That's why we poop it out, right? So a whole bunch of things, mm. like our body just cannot store it. They just poop it out. And I think that's something else to help people kind of understand is that when it comes to fiber, right? I cannot give you the exact classification on what is what, but there's insoluble fiber and soluble fiber as well, right? So soluble fiber can be digested to a certain extent, which means that there are more calories in soluble fiber than insoluble fiber. So that's another uh, distinction on, it basically depends on whether our body are able to metabolize whatever you put in for energy, you know? So that's kind of like a way to kind of wrap your head around it. The fiber you do, you do break it down to an extent because there's calories to it, right? Just not like as it, much, you mean, or? Yeah. So soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, right? Uh, that that the calorie amount would differ between those two, right? What what the difference is, I actually cannot remember from the top of my head. Uh, uh, but yes, that like a lot of this style of stuff is like negligible. For example, aspartame as well. It is metabolized to a very very small degree, but because the quantity of aspartame used to achieve the level of sweetness, uh, in our body, sorry, the level of sweetness for our body to perceive is so much smaller compared to sugar. So even by metabolizing aspartame, we don't, we just count the calories as negligible, right? So in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't play a role, right? So that's kind of like how we mm. look at things, whether whether it doesn't, like I said, practically, sort of like mechanistically, right? There, there are calories, but practically it's negligible, right? So there's that distinction to be drawn as well. And fiber is the same, right? The fiber also does give you like some benefits, right? Like a, we went over f through the benefits. Yep. So yep. how does so it I'm give that benefit? A... Sorry? How do we get those benefits from it? So like I mentioned, uh, like when we eat fiber, it comes with certain amounts of food. Uh, the, the foods that contains fiber has other properties as well, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah. vitamins and stuff, right? And then obviously, like I said, if the gut bacteria does play a role, we don't know what the role is, but potentially it does play a role. Uh, you know, that, that could re regulate things as well. So uh, like I said, the, the research in fiber is still really interesting, but I do think, like I said, it's very different between, yeah. So I, I think this goes very, very nice into the tangent of like, you know, this like uh, artificial sweetness, right? Because fiber is something that has, we lean towards very like more beneficial, right? The At least the perception of fiber is that it's beneficial with like almost no harm, right? Whereas artificial sweetness is that, is probably neutral to harmful, right? So that's the distinction right there, you know. Uh, even though and both are like calorie-free. And also, if I may add, that would be why when people say like you have a lot of fiber, you know, vegetables, a lot of fiber, you might feel satiated in full, but you're not keeping it all. So you're not getting a lot of calories. It's kind of like, okay, you want to feel full? Eat a lot of this. And just like the stevia and aspartame, you're getting the taste factor. You're going to feel full in your tummy, but you're not going to keep it. So you're kind of, you're checking off those boxes. I taste it. I feel full from it. 
I'm not going to gain it like relatively speaking, you know, it, yep. it, I'm not going to keep a lot of it, which checks some boxes, but sorry, you were, you were, you were saying in terms of the sweeteners and the perception where it's from neutral to harmful, whereas fiber is from neutral to beneficial. Yep. So that, that's the reason why people say like, you know, you can eat, if something is neutral to positive, right. You'd be like, okay, can we just eat more of it? You'd probably be fine. But if something is like neutral to harmful, you don't want to be like, eat more of it. Right. Uh, and mm. Because you the like if it's potentially harmful, the more of it you consume, you increase that probability of it being harmful, right? So uh, hmm. that I think that's the that's the perception uh, on you know drawing the distinction that doesn't have on something that doesn't have calories, uh, but we're looking at the outcomes that are not calorically or energy intake related. Do, do and this might be I said your area of expertise, but is there a lot of harm from stevia and aspartame, et cetera, that we know about? Or is this unclear? Or um, or have you not looked into it too much? I don't know if this even comes up with what you do. I think it's actually really like super interesting, right? Like, I, I'm a big like history geek as well. I think one people, a challenge people will lay against proponents. I don't want to say proponents because I don't think, okay, I may be wrong, but there probably are some people out there who are proponents of artificial sweeteners, right? I tend to be like, you know, it's probably fine. You know, uh, don't fret about it too much, but I wouldn't call myself a proponent. I'm like, oh yeah, have artificial sweeteners as often as possible. But something people would lay, uh, a criticism people would lay uh, against quote unquote proponents of artificial sweeteners would be, uh, so for example, the most popular artificial sweetener that was first in the market is actually uh, saccharin. And how saccharin was discovered was basically uh, somebody was like, one of the scientists was dealing with coal tar, right? And he didn't wash his hands, right? And a byproduct of that, he tasted it and it was sweet. That's how like saccharin was developed. So people will say like, oh, this thing it was from, uh, yeah, coal, like saccharin was basically discovered for coal tar. You won't eat coal tar, would you? Why would you eat like artificial sweeteners like saccharin, you know? So like, uh, that is, uh, that is something, a criticism people would actually throw out uh, I, I think it's fallacious, but yeah, people would usually say that, you know, and uh, aspartame was developed by an, a complete accident, right? Uh, by And they, they were looking at anti-ulcer drugs. And then it's just a common theme where scientists just doesn't wash their hands and then they accidentally lick their finger and realize the thing is sweet. So that is basically how aspartame and saccharine was developed, you know, like, so people think that this is back in also like the 1960s. Oh, this and, is know, careless. Like, first but, off, these, these freaking God bless these scientists because they, they, they got us, you know, these sweeteners, but don't wash your hands, man. What what are you working with in the lab? This is how you get lab leaks. What are you doing? Licking your freaking fingers. Like, hey, you know what? Gotta be said a little fucking sweet. I think we're onto something. You're a scientist. But, but anyway, sorry, go on. It, 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 like say people will lay this out criticisms as well but then I, I I don't think people will say like penicillin is bad because penicillin was also discovered by an accident where the scientist essentially just left his petri dish out and then the bacteria just like grew upon it and then he found that the fungus and the bacteria doesn't like uh like it wasn't interacting and then that substance was then developed into penicillin right so it's like not every like accidental finding is actually bad right because x-rays are the same thing as well x-rays were discovered as a byproduct where it's just emitting electrical rays and then the scientist was trying to block it and then when he was trying to block it he found like there were two images being generated and that's how the x-ray was developed 
you know, things like this. Oh. So like, dude, you really are a nerd with the science, but look at gravity was found by accident. Wasn't it a freaking apple hitting? Um, Isaac Newton's head. Yeah. Newton's head. It, it, like a lot. This is, I mean, it's common throughout history um, to your point. Yeah. So I, I think it's just fascinating, right? I think it's like important to kind of understand where all of this comes from, because there are certain things that uh, historically people would lay criticisms that, oh, because it's discovered this way, it must be bad. So I'm just trying to say that, you know, this is not the case because there are also so many things that are really beneficial that has been discovered by quote unquote accident and certain means that are quote unquote non-ethical as well. Uh, so uh, at least by modern standards. So when we look at all of this, I, I think that looking at things, there are three things we have to kind of like answer, right? So the common a common criticism uh, or a common thing that people would first say is that oh, all these artificial sweeteners causes uh, cancer, right? Uh, and you go back to the concept I have shared previously. You ask, right, what what is the mechanisms that will lead to cancer, right? And until today, right, people would postulate all, all a bunch of stuff. Uh, we know how cancer cells are kind of like formed, right? Or how cancer cells grow, right? And then you have to say, okay, cool. How does this artificial sweetness actually link to that, right? And we, a lot of times when we look at a lot of the cancer research, it happens throughout a long period of time, right? It's not like, okay, cool. You know, like if I eat artificial one day, the next week I'm going to get cancer, right? So the, the, the question here is that what is the long-term effect and then what is the short-term effect? And usually short-term effects of artificial sweeteners, right? Uh, it's probably due to the fact that you, it's like toxicity, right? You consume too much of a certain substance. Uh, there's toxicity in the body or adverse reaction. So for example, I, I'm not saying that consuming too much fiber creates toxicity, but adverse acute adverse reaction of fiber is running to the bathroom and repainting your toilet, right? So that is the acute side effect of fiber, right? And to achieve the acute side effect of aspartame, right? For example, you probably have to consume like 21 cans of like diet soda, right? So uh, that is where the toxicity level is reached for aspartame. Uh, so in terms of looking at cancer, a lot of the research doesn't show like things like aspartame actually has any links to cancer, right? Uh, at least based on when it was discovered until now, right? Or, as, or at least when it's studied until now. And aspartame is actually one of the most like studied substance, uh, one of the most studied substance in the world. So um, that is kind oh, of like wow. kind of like safe right so that's the first question because people uh, when we look at impacts people obviously are more concerned with the serious impacts first which is will I die from cancer if I consume aspartame because your life right. is probably more important than anything else then the second question that we ask ourselves is uh, will I actually gain weight right uh, if I consume aspartame because aspartame is sold as something that actually artificial sweeteners you don't get calories but would the side effects actually uh, look at would, would would the side effect would cause me to gain weight or not because like I said gaining weight is linked to obesity and obesity can lead to poorer health outcomes right so now we get rid of the death portion right the cancer death is out we look at weight gain and obesity what is the link right uh, from aspartame and dose and what they did and people who did research out there they actually looked at uh, it's actually quite interesting research where they fed uh, where, where they fed like it's an, it's an animal study where they fed them aspartame, right? And they fed uh, a group with like only like sugar or maltodextrin and a group, uh, yeah, sorry, they fed a group with maltodextrin and aspartame, right? So maltodextrin is just like, a, a, like basically just pure, like glu glucose. And the group that consume aspartame and uh, glucose, they actually consume more calories after, right? So this was in like, uh, I think it's in, in mice, right? 
So, uh, but the what they theorize is that the aspartame uh, signals to our body because our body does perceive sweetness, right, as something that has calories, right? But aspartame gives no calories, so it creates a signal for our body to want to have more calories after, right? Uh, and that's the theory that has been postulated on why that happens, that it may cause people to eat more after you consume aspartame, right? And but the study, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending on which side you are, was not be, was not replicable. So another research group did the exact same thing, right? And they couldn't replicate it in the same group of mice uh, with the other researcher. So I would say that that is probably, first of all, in terms of mice itself, it's not conclusive, right? And then we were trying to take that mice study to humans. And then despite mice being very similar to students and, uh, sorry, students take their mice study and apply it to humans, despite mice being, um, or at least rodent studies, actually not, sorry, mice studies, because if it counts hamster as rodents, hamster and mice are very, is hamster a rodent? I don't know. Dog, I, I, I would say so. I'm probably offending okay. people who own yeah. hamsters. <laughs> yeah, but so, so hamsters are, are, are quite different from mice. Mice are much like closer to humans, but to carry that into humans itself, we have some unclear results from mice. So if that is unclear, we can't actually say it's going to be clear in humans because the metabolism of mice is much quicker than uh, human beings because obviously mice has like shorter lifespan, right? So that itself, I would say it's unclear in mice, uh, probably even unclear in humans. And not to mention that if we are looking at population who are seeking why we use aspartame is to actually reduce obesity, it probably means, I mean, I sincerely hope that that is the, not the only thing they're doing to try and reduce weight. They probably are exercising, eating uh, like fresh fruits and vegetables. And that could probably negate any of those like potential side effects. Because the, the group that the mice that had uh, mouth, uh, that had the aspartame, like I said, they were seeking out calories, right? But usually people, oh, I have a diet soda with my meal, for example, right? I'm, perhaps you're already getting calories, so your body doesn't really seek out the calories. So that could be some some time of like, it may negate that calorie-seeking behavior uh, in human beings, right? And obviously, if you exercise, it helps with appetite regulation and all that, all that kind of fun stuff. So that's the, the second question we ask ourselves, right? Uh, how does it impact weight gain? Because like I said, first you have the cancer, then you have the weight gain because weight gain is important because it impacts obesity and obesity impacts health outcomes. And the last one is actually very new line of research, which is actually interesting, is how does uh, artificial sweeteners right, uh, impact uh, gut microbiome? Once again, going to back to gut microbiome. And like I said, you, you go down in the hierarchy of stuff. You get rid of cancer, which is probably the most serious because you're probably going to die, right? Especially back in the day where chemotherapy is not as advanced back in the 1960s and 1970s. Then you have that obesity thing uh, which is probably the next in line, even though some people may actually say that obesity is worse than cancer, right? They can argue about that. Uh, but then you have like the gut microbiome, which it actually plays a role, but we still, because we don't know the impacts, uh, it's probably like less on lower on the hierarchy of like ill effects. Uh, and in terms of that, we, it does show that gut microbiome is actually impacted by uh, artificial sweeteners, right? Aspartame does impact it. But the thing is that because the gut microbiome research is so new and it actually, Anything impacts your gut microbiome, right? If you do, you train, right? And you take your, you measure your gut microbiome, you'd be different from when you didn't train, right? And the research for gut microbiome is so inconclusive because they actually showed that some people having the same artificial sweetener 
actually had increased in good gut, gut microbiome and some actually didn't. So because it's just so individualized, we cannot draw any conclusive evidence from that because the research is actually just so new. And this to paint a picture, right? Like I said, aspartame was kind of discovered in like the 1960s, 1970s. The gut microbiome research for aspartame or any form of artificial sweeteners was only like, it took the world by storm only in 2014. So it's less than a decade old, right? Mm. Uh, so we can't really know much about it yet. But in terms of the hierarchy of things, right? As someone who's a practitioner, no, you probably will not get cancer. In terms of gaining weight, uh, whether you gain weight or lose weight, it might be, if it helps you reduce your calorie intake, it's great. It probably will not increase your appetite. And in terms of your gut microbiome, we probably don't know because that whole field is just a question mark. So that's kind of like the hierarchy. I would tell people to kind of like evaluate when it comes to artificial sweeteners and hopefully what I've shared kind of like paints a clearer picture for some people. That was a, that's a really good breakdown. Um, it, what about stevia then? Is that... Is there linkages towards health concerns with that one? Do you know? I know stevia is relatively new, is it not? Or is it just not as it just got popular, but it's been around for a while? Because it would, I I mean, I freaking I love it. All right. But <laughs> it's I, I'm not sure because it is different. And um I'm not sure what large consumptions of stevia might do. Do you know much? Do we have much research on stevia? I think I think that. So the, the two big papers out there that actually showed uh, was the 2014 paper that I talked about was actually published in Nature, uh, one of the top science journals in the world. Uh, every top science journal has like crappy papers as well. So I'm not saying that everything comes out from Nature is good. Uh, and then I think that one recently came out in Cell, which is also another like big paper, right? Uh, big journal, right? They actually look at Stevia and they actually showed that Stevia didn't really uh, impact things as much as aspartame, but like I said, the whole thing is really like inconclusive as of now. Uh, and people don't really like, to my knowledge, people don't actually like demonize stevia as much because it's like quote unquote natural. So, so it should be fine for you, you know, whereas aspartame is artificial. Like I said, all these are under the category of non-nutritive sweeteners, uh, but aspartame is artificial, right? Artificial because it's not found in, plants, whereas stevia is actually found from plants. Like monk fruit and stevia are the two non-nutritive sweeteners that are quote-unquote natural that has like zero calories because our body doesn't metabolize the compounds in those uh, plants. So in general, I would say that no, you know, the only form of uh, artificial sweetener, I would say that's bad is probably a, uh, is that if you meet a guy and the guy is like fake kind to you, then that is bad. That's, that's the only artificial sweetener I would say is bad. Well, was that, that a shot at me? Was that a shot no. at me? That sounded personal. And I apologized for that incident in Malta. And we'll leave it at that. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. Sounds good. I wanted to, because I was reading before this, I was looking at some uh, Lee Norton videos and he was actually talking about, uh, while we're on the subject, we won't dwell on here too much longer with like, you know, diet, obesity, et cetera. We'll go back into some powerlifting, gut cutting, et cetera, and, and what you should eat for performance. But he was talking about with the problems we have in North America, the average American diet is just shy of 3,500 calories a day. And you know, as you, you're tracking a lot of calories for your clients, 
just how much 3,500 calories a day is. And the average physical activity is around 20 minutes a day they'll do stuff, which means it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause obesity. And a lot of people are going to be saying, a lot of people who say like, my metabolism is very, my metabolism slow now. I'm, I'm 35, I'm 40, my whatever, what have you, hormones, whatever they're saying. But the most commonality we see is a surplus of calories and not enough activity. And it's, it comes down to an easy calories in, calories out, which is entirely up to people's control. And often you hear things of, this isn't in your control, don't worry. You know what it is? It's this, it's that. There's nothing you could do about it. So continue on. But uh, So I thought that was interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's like, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen the post by, by Lane, but I don't know how they classify physical activity, right? Whether it's just, anything that's active, right? So even if you take a walk, right, would that be considered as physical activity or do we look at physical activity excluding like general walking? Because if we look at people who are like office jobs, obviously like 20 minutes of physical activity basically means 2000 steps a day, right? That's actually like really low. Like that's like really low, right? So, uh, so for people out there who don't have a step counter uh, and you want to get steps, roughly 10 minutes usually equates to a thousand steps, right? Just a general moderate walking pace. But so 2,000 steps a day is actually really low for someone who consumes approximately uh, 3,500 3, calories, right? Obviously, depending on uh, different uh, height, weight, sizes, right? Everybody's metabolism would be very different. And I think if you go, people go back to the previous podcast episode that we talked about, where we actually like, I wouldn't say it's a deep dive, but I think I shared a lot uh, about like how, like, I, would, I don't want to say a myth, but you know, like what people think about met metabolism, metabolism slowing down is actually... Uh, as widespread as people would think, right? So people can just easily go back to that episode and listen to it, right? Uh, sit through the whole three hour, 15 minutes because, you know, that's how we roll. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, it's uh, it's interesting because it's a simple calorie out, calorie in, calorie out equation, but there are also like really like other underlying factors as well. Uh, so it's definitely a combination of your, the thing that, your, the personal responsibility that people can take and also the food environment. I also posted another thread another day because I've been thinking a lot about this, right? I I, I grew up like in a like very traditional Asian Asian family where everything's like you personal responsibility plays a huge role. You know, you you work hard, you can achieve things. Uh so I tend to lean towards that direction. But I just give it a lot of thought because being in practice, you know, I, I see a lot of uh different, different uh I deal with a lot of different people in different situations. And I essentially said that to tell someone that all like the 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 problem of you gaining weight or whatever nutritional problems you have, right, is all it's only uh, autonomy and personal responsibility is taking away empathy from them, right? But to tell someone that is everything is because of your environment is taking away personal responsibility, right? So you need a mix of like empathy and personal responsibility for someone to uh actually overcome whatever is in front of them, because like I said. There are a lot of studies out there looking at like food environment, right? Economic status, which I'm not, I'm no expert in, but I know that they do exist. And a lot of the research out there does, does lean towards uh, like food environment plays a huge role. And I don't doubt that because like I said, fried chicken, if it's easily accessible, right? Uh, and it's tasty, people will tend to consume more of that. And I don't know uh, whether all these factors, uh, all these studies con uh, actually controls for like education, right? Because some people will say, oh, people don't know this. That's why they eat stuff like that. So I actually have no idea. You know, I'm pretty sure if I had the time, uh, I, I would be able to look into it. But I do think that 
uh, understanding why people, my role as a nutrition coach, right? I always go in with the, I don't go in with the preconceived notion that whatever I say, people will listen to me. I go in with like, my job is to persuade you why you should listen to me. So I either, I empathize with you, you're, I empathize with the troubles that you're, you're uh, facing. And then I try to provide a solution and hopefully the combination of empathy plus the solution would be able to create that persuasion for you to have responsibility and then generate a positive outcome. So that's just generally generally how I approach things. Uh, so I don't necessarily think because, oh, because Kedrick is this person, he coached this person, this person's going to listen to me. But if I don't have to work as hard, right, and someone would just like listen to me like they're a robot, right? Uh, great, you know, uh, it reduces the amount of time uh, I would have to spend in this specific phase because naturally people go through different phases of life or different goals. Uh, all those like adherence would change. So I'm, it's great, but like I don't go in with the preconceived notion that's gonna be. Everybody just have to listen to me because I'm uh, this person, you know. So I think that when it comes to the food environment, it's the same as well. I just don't think if you tell people calories in, calories out, right? They're gonna figure it out. Uh, and say like, oh, you just have to be responsible. Uh, I they, then they will be able to figure it out on their own because I do think that that personal responsibility is important. But most of the time, like people do know solutions that are in front of them, they know solutions exist, but sometimes they just, unfortunately, this is, fortunately or unfortunately, but this is just how humans are. We want, whether it's people listening to them or people like journeying with them along the way or accountability, right? Those are really like important for success, you know? And the reason why like things like Alcoholic Anonymous, you know, uh, those things works well is because there are a whole bunch of people having the same problem and they all empathize with one another and they all have personal responsibility uh, and they all keep each other account accountable. Right, I'm not trying to equate people, uh, being slightly uh, obese or people having uh, uh, overweight, to being uh, addicted to alcohol. Right, but I'm just saying that there are elements that create behavioral changes that are in certain populations that potentially we can use and see how it's useful. Like how you said, like certain fields that are very very closely related, like co combat sports and powerlifting in terms of weight cutting. Right, uh, we may find solutions from uh, other other disciplines and try to carry them over. So in general, those are like my thoughts. Yeah. Um, you raised a couple of good points there. Well, like first off your last one, for sure. Uh, if you're dealing with something, whatever it is, use the point of Alcoholics Anonymous, but whatever it is, you know, finding other people dealing with the same similar situations and talking about it and finding out the solutions they did for sure. It's always a good idea. Um, in terms of, Economics, yeah, I don't know as well. You know, fast food is cheap food. You, for a dollar, you can get a burger. That's crazy. Um, how much and how much is like healthy foods? If you want to go to the grocery store and start buying like healthy, like proteins and chicken and whatnot, it's probably going to be a lot more money. Um, and also, you also brought up a good point too about education on this and how much education is is there about this and how many people actually know about calories um my micronutrients macronutrients and and all the rest of it and how much is that is even a major concern when you can't afford a lot of like a food the budget's tight anyways how much of that is something you can even work around anyways this is true this is all parts of it um so this is all that's a whole nother topic <laughs> for for this podcast but you made some good points sir i appreciate it 
Um, looking at the, we, we had a couple questions come in about, uh, gut cutting and water cutting pros and cons of gut cutting. Cause we're hearing a lot about gut cutting lately in terms of people trying to make weight classes and how you feel about gut cutting. What exactly is gut cutting? Cause let's not assume anybody knows what it is and some pros, some cons you felt if you've used it, do you not like to use it? And then maybe we talk about the contrast of when someone might use it instead of a water cut and why would you replace it with a water cut or the opposite. You might be like, my friend, maybe a water cut's better for you. Yep. Yeah. So before I go into that, just I just wanted to like clarify something from the previous conversation about artificial sweetness because I think, like I said, I gave that hierarchy of things and looking at mechanistically how it works, but practically like there's a lot of research that actually showed that replacement of sweetened calories, sweetened drinks with artificial sweeteners actually results in uh, positive in terms of weight loss. So just that's just to put it out there because I think that I don't want to make it seem like everything's still out in the air because I think practically there's some benefits. But now back to the gut cut. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I, I, I think, uh, so the gut cut is interesting. I don't want to assume that people know what it is, but essentially when uh, it goes back to the whole conversation uh, just now about fiber, right? So when we look at fiber, we have certain things that would actually, uh, fiber basically doesn't really get digested. So it holds like food weight in our stomach, right? So that's the a component, first component. The second component is that food weight, food in general has weight. Uh, it goes back to our previous conversation uh, about protein, right? So I don't know whether you see what I'm doing. I'm trying to tie up the previous lessons from before. So uh, refresh for people, you know? Uh, yeah. So when I talk about protein, Right, 100 grams of chicken gives you 30 grams of protein, but like 35 grams of uh, a scoop of a protein shake gives you 25 grams of protein. So in terms of food weight, right, for the same amount of protein, the protein shake will give you lesser food weight. So these two factors actually ties in to the gut cut, right? You have the fiber, which has weight in your body because it doesn't really get digested and you have food weight from food itself. So a gut cut is essentially just a very colloquial term to just say we're manipulating these two aspects to reduce the amount of weight in our gut or in our stomachs, right? So this is often done through uh, reduction in fiber across a span of a couple of days and also swapping out foods that are larger in volume, right? For foods that are more dense in calories, but smaller in volume. So in terms of food weight, sorry, in terms of fiber, we are just thinking of a reduction in fiber, removing all like complex carbohydrates, right? Uh, reducing fiber. In terms of food is that whatever you eat on a diet, you want to do the opposite. That's how I usually tell people you want to eat like things that are high in fat, right? So you want to get the most amount of calories for the least amount of weight you can get, okay? So that's essentially how uh, a gut cut kind of like works. And if we look at the research so far out there, uh, there's a paper out there by Real and colleagues, right? People can search it up. They use the gut cut com in the combination with uh, um, a gut cut in combination with water loading, right? And then there's another paper out there that looked at only a gut cut, right? It's by Fu and colleagues. I think it was published last year. Uh, really, really neat paper. And then there's another paper that's about to be uh, submitted for review coming from my PhD, right? I look at uh, a gut cut uh, with swapping uh, macronutrients. So the difference between the, those three studies is that the first study used a gut cut in combination with water loading and water cutting. The second study only did fiber reduction. And my study, what I did was I did fiber reduction and I also uh, manipulated the carbohydrate to fat ratio, meaning that they get the same amount of calories, right? But uh, more of the calories came from fat rather than carbohydrates. So that 
potentially would help reduce the food weight as well. Because for the same amount of calories, you would need to consume larger amounts of carbohydrate, right? So those are the difference between the three studies. And the question that you asked, whether someone would, why would someone do a gut cut uh, compared to something else? Or when should someone do a gut cut compared to something else is dependent on how much weight uh, this person would lose, right? For example, uh, and or how much weight this person re is required to lose. So the first study, right, because it's a combination of water loading and water cutting, we don't really know uh, what the amount of, we cannot isolate how much weight it was lost itself. But then the second one, they did just a fiber reduction. Uh, so the fiber reduction weight, they actually lost around 0.7% of body weight uh, across uh, four days of fiber reduction. And my study, the range, I think is like 1.3% uh, to 1.6% of body weight. Uh, if you use a combination of fiber reduction uh, for three days plus uh, manipulating the carbohydrate to fat ratio, right? So the range anywhere from the low end is 0.7 all the way to 1.6. So that's a pretty pretty wide range, right? And the answer to know is that how, uh, how much you lose is to experiment and see if you're going for world championships, don't let your first gut cut be the day, the three days before your world championships. Test it out, right? And then see how much weight you can lose. And why would you prefer that compared to some other methods is because uh, reducing a gut cut doesn't put you in a state of dehydration because essentially remember that water load and a water cut is actually dehydrating you through expelling water, right? Uh, the only difference is very similar to, it, it, the idea is very similar with getting into the sauna. The only difference between a sauna is that you are dehydrating yourself by imposing heat stress so you're sweating, right? So both both the sauna and the water loading and water cutting still creates dehydration and certain rates of dehydration, right, uh, can actually have uh, ill impacts on performance and even like physiological process. Whereas a gut cut manipulates just uh, the food volume. So the side effects would probably be less, right? So that's kind of like the thought process behind it. And the paper that, the first paper that I mentioned that we don't really know how much the gut cut, uh, how much the participants lost during the gut cut because they combined water loading and water cutting. They, I think the participants from on top of my head, they lost around 3.4% combination of both methods, right? So that gives you certain ranges. If you use a water load, only protocol, right? You probably, if you subtract the 0.7, right? Uh, 0.7, okay, let's just say 0.7 to 1.6. Let's take the middle, right? That's 2.3, so it's like 1.1, right? You lose 1.1% from the gut cut. So water loading, you probably can lose around 2.5% water loading alone. So you now have certain ranges. If we do some, play with some mathematics, water loading alone, you lose 2.5%. Gut cut, you can lose anywhere from 0.8 to 0.6, right? The middle is like 1.15, right? So if you combine those methods, you lose around 35 to 3.6%. So that would generally be the amount of weight someone can lose using each method or a combination of both. It's interesting. So essentially what you're saying is it wouldn't necessarily be an either or situation um, for your athletes. Gut cut sounds relatively risk-free unless there's something that I'm missing. So you would be like, okay, first thing on the protocol would be gut cut. If you only need to lose within this range, we can add in the water cut on top of that. If we're further away from that range and we need to lose more and there is more risk associated with the water cut. 
due to, like you said, you could cut a lot of water, but the more water you cut, the more you'll be hampering your performance. Um, so now that's where the risk starts coming in. Is there, is there really any risk from a gut cut that you've seen or, or read about? Is there, is there side effects for a gut cut that might hamper performance or not really? Uh, not at least not to my knowledge, right? Because it's also really hard to tease out whether that performance impact is due to the magnitude of weight loss, meaning the total amount of weight being that is lost versus the intervention alone. Because the gut cut and the water load and the water cutting is very different, the amount of weight loss. So it's very different if you say that the gut cut lose 1.5% and the water load lose 1.5% and then we evaluate performance, right? Then we can say that the same magnitude of weight resulted in the same uh, sorry, the both interventions resulted in the same magnitude of weight loss, but one had better uh, performance than the other. But because mm. the magnitude of weight loss is different, I can't even say that uh, whether if there's an impact is actually due to the weight loss or the actual intervention itself. So I cannot tease that apart. Not to mention there are not many studies on water loading out there, right? Uh, there's only one to my knowledge, right? They actually look at certain ranges. And the funny thing is that after my paper gets published, there will be two studies on gut cut. So there's two studies on gut cut, one study on water loading. So that's how scarce the evidence is, right? And that essentially is the research, the, the nature of research. And not to mention, like in practice as well, I have never seen a non-responder to the gut cut, right? But I've seen non-responders to water loading and water cutting. And the reason why- Is that right? Yeah, because essentially, if you think about a gut cut, is that you're manipulating the weight in your body, right? Whereas- the water, the rehydration, because our body is so uh, tightly regulated and water or fluids play such a huge role in our body, it's really tightly regulated. So to manipulate that itself is actually really, really difficult. So there may be non-responders. And like I said, there's only one study out there, you know, right? So, and even the study said that the mechanisms are not uh, fully teased out. So if we go back to the previous thing I talk about. You have the practical element and you have the mechanisms. This one, there is some practical impact, but we don't know the, really know what the mechanisms are. So we cannot really be certain. But I think for the gut cut, we can be a little bit more certain because there's the practical element of weight loss. And we know that the mechanisms is there because the mechanisms are just slightly more straightforward. Essentially, you're just pooping out everything in and you're just eating less in general, right? So we have stronger evidence based on the criteria that I use to evaluate uh, the yeah the criteria that I used to evaluate the practical aspect right and then the mechanisms involved so I think that that is something to actually really really consider as well uh because yeah like I said I've seen people who don't respond to water loading water cutting uh but I've never seen a non-responder to a gut cut if done correctly right so that's the caveat if done correctly and I mean not even to even touch up on if it's a woman doing the water cut. In the menstrual strike the menstrual cycle can also impact if if she's retaining water or not and and then that could be a whole nother thing when it comes to manipulating the water as well so there's variables with it i guess there's just less variables with that gut cut situation where all right this is a little more tried and true now the recomp in terms of it is there even need for a recomp when it comes to gut cuts because you it sounds like you you can still regulate how many calories you get in and that's your fuel and your energy sources so really there is no need for a recomp then in that case as well right 
yeah so uh in general the the recon like everything that you do uh is dependent on i mean if people listen to the previous podcast which uh, they should because we go in a little bit more in depth into all these cutting strategies is that i think that eating is severely overrated right for two hour weigh-ins right i've mentioned that i think hydration is the big thing if you are performing some form of cutting process then it goes back to the question right that which method is creating dehydration and if the method is creating dehydration your recomposite your rehydration has to be a little bit more on point with the gut cut you don't have to but there isn't like say it goes back to the question of what is the benefit and what are the downsides if it doesn't help if you it doesn't harm you if you were to like drink a liter of water right especially most people that do a gut cut they also fast alongside it right so instead of maybe like stopping water intake or like they instead of like drinking all throughout the night they may stop water in the at 6 p.m so if they weigh in at 8 they still be for roughly uh 14 hours without water so it doesn't help sorry it doesn't harm to actually like get hydration in but you don't have to be as aggressive but for someone like gavin aiden uh at sheffield where he, he not only does did a, uh we not only did a water load and water cup but he had to sauna like that rehydration process had to have to be very very aggressive you know uh and i would probably attribute that partly to me telling him, hey, you know, you have to do this, right? I know it feels uncomfortable now, but you will have time for your weight to kind of like set, your weight to settle, right? Uh, sorry, your for the fluids to settle, right? So you have to recom and rehydrate harder because your cutting process was much harder. So that is kind of like uh, what I would say in terms of recom or post-weigh-in uh, refueling, right? Just use that as a term. Post weigh, post weigh in refueling. If you perform a method that induces dehydration versus a method that doesn't. Briefly, the reason why calories are overrated on the day of it's is it because what you had mentioned earlier? Um, essentially, you were still processing calories from the day before. If it's Long term, you don't eat enough calories day after day after day. That's going to catch up to you. Yes, then now yeah. you're talking an impact in performance. But if it's if you had been eating in the day of, you're not eating as much. It just won't impact as much as people might believe because the calories in your system that you're going to be using on that day are actually, like you had said, 24 hours, 48 hours, etc., been already consumed and ready to go, and you maybe the next day feel fatigued if you'd never ended up eating that day very much and but it's going to catch up to you later on so the timing of it is really what it is calories is still energy etc people are like how is that so that calories is energy and you don't have to eat the day of it's is it, it the timing and the processing of these calories that people have off in their minds i so yeah, it, it basically boils down to what happens during the taper week. So typically what we do is that during the taper week, we try to avoid being in a calorie deficit, right? I tell people that, people ask me, what is, uh, how do you help all these lifters cut weight? And I just said that 95% of the work was done 16 weeks ago. If I if I did my work right and plan it well and the lifter executes it well with my uh, guidance, the weight making process should be simple, you know? So 95% of it is done. So we don't go into a calorie deficit during the taper week, which means that, your body would not be tapping into your internal fuel sources, right? Which is most probably muscle glycogen or fat stores, right? Uh, so the things that even if it does tap into your fat stores at the start, right? Uh, most of the people during the taper week, they tend to be uh, in a very small like aerobic state. You're just walking around, right? So uh, you 
most likely tap into your fat stores rather, rather than your muscle glycogen. And even if you're in a calorie deficit during the paper week, you know, you are still eating carbohydrates, right? And it should be able to replenish your uh, glycogen stores in your muscle because you're not actively exerting, uh, performing any uh, high-intensity exertion exercises, right? So essentially, your internal fuel stores are topped up. So that's one, right? So you don't have to kind of worry about whether you have internal fuel stores or not during the table week. And then the next part is that eating is overrated because in a two-hour weigh-in, because your body will not be able to absorb all the food that you consume anyway, right? There's a rate-limiting uh, amount of how, how many carbohydrates that your body can absorb per hour, right? And any more than that, it just sits in your stomach and you know it may actually cause you some uh, GI distress if you consume too many carbohydrates. So uh, like I said, it goes back to the question is, does it provide a neutral to positive benefit or does it provide a neutral to harmful benefit? So in terms of eating a lot, I would say that all things considered, it probably provides a neutral to harmful benefit if you just smash a bunch of food in you if you have already taken care of all the other elements I've mentioned before the weigh-ins. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, the recomp is something that I think people probably get wrong often and also the last couple of days before. That's when you hear people being like, I cut this, I cut that, I... Well, how much did you cut? How much calories did you have leading up to? And um, yeah, I mean, if you cut too much, then it'll catch up to you. And that's where there's so many variables. That's why like, and, and you could have the most amazing prep and just be smashing PRs and can't wait. Show up, fumble the bag on this. Fumble the bag on your calories, fumble the bag on, on the water cut um, or the recomp. And be focusing on the areas you don't need to focus on and and, and not realize there's up the other pieces where you should have been paying more attention. Um, and in terms of the, some people talk about carbohydrates and retention of water. Is this, is this a big factor? Overrated, underrated? How do you feel about that? So carbohydrates and retention of water is basically the amount of water that's being pulled in when you store muscle glycogen, right? So, but the fact of the matter is that you are not depleting muscle glycogen because to deplete muscle glycogen, right, you need to go, you need to perform a particular set of activities to deplete your muscle glycogen, right? And my background prior to diving into the uh, powerlifting research is actually I did my master's in uh, carbohydrates. Uh, sort, of, sort of like, yeah, I did my master's focusing on carbohydrates and performance in endurance athletes. Uh, I know I don't look the type. Uh, but what we did was we had to deplete the muscle glycogen of like the lifters, sorry, the lifters, the, 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 the cyclists. And you basically have to cycle for around like 90 minutes at uh, 90 minutes at around 80% of your, like 75 to 80% of your VO2 max. And for a power lifter, you will not last 10 minutes doing that. So to deplete and to do that, you only deplete 50%, roughly 50% of your muscle glycogen, right? Uh, so, that by depleting your muscle glycogen, doing that as a powerlifter, you probably get like doms from cycling and you probably want to end your life instead of uh, compared to making weight. So that's probably uh, that's probably why uh, that thing doesn't really play a role into 
for powerlifters, but it does play a role for combat uh, combat sport lifters. Because combat sport lifters, 90 minutes on a bike, it's nothing to them. You know, it's like child's play, right? Not even, they can do it in their sleep, you know? Uh, so, and then they also have like 24 hours to replenish their muscle glycogen. So, but for powerlifters, it's something that shouldn't even, powerlifters with a two hour weigh-in shouldn't even be a consideration. So you don't, they don't need to worry about, this all goes back to like, you don't even need to worry about manipulating your carbohydrates, really? Um, Not in terms of glycogen, but in terms of, like I said, when I manipulate my carbohydrate ratio in my study, it's just that carbohydrate-rich foods tend to be heavier, right? Whereas if you eat fat, fattier foods, they tend to be lighter. So you're just reducing the amount of food in your stomach, the food weight in your stomach. Hmm, interesting. Okay, because this is another myth that people start doing in terms of like cutting out carbs and, you know, they they retain water and, and all the rest of it. And this is stuff that people try to focus on manipulating. And um, yeah, I mean, I it, it is, uh, I don't know if like back in the, I don't know how it all started, some of these, these wives tales, but, you know, these myths live on until someone like you comes around on these podcasts and starts dispelling them. There's also some stuff we were, we were getting questions. And when we posted those about timing of, you know, your even throughout just training, the timing of eating and whatnot, how important is that? Do you, do you, is it, is it important to time intake in terms of calories and certain foods and certain proteins and, in looking into this kind of thing, any kind of timing at all, is that if you could break it down to an overrated, underrated, how do you feel? Uh, I would probably say uh, it's probably, this is more like neutral, I guess. I think that looking at it, like I say, I like to tell people, how, I don't like to tell people what to do. I like, I usually say this is how you think about things. Uh, when it comes to nutrients eating, right, there's always the immediate impact, right, uh, and the trade-off that's related to it, right? So when you look at carbohydrates, for example, tying to the previous example, uh, which um, I said that if you consume carbohydrates, right, it does help you in your performance uh, to a certain extent, right? Especially if you are, you know, in a state of deficit, right? If you are being in a calorie deficit, you know, the carbohydrates tend to be slightly more uh, beneficial, right? Uh, if you are, uh, if you're training higher volume, carbohydrates tend to be slightly more beneficial. Uh, if you're training after, like early in the morning, right? Uh, after a period of fasting, they tend to be more beneficial. But the question is, what's the trade-off, right? If you're if you're just consuming so much carbohydrates, right, that your body cannot absorb it, you're just gonna probably just feel too stuffed. You're gonna feel bloated because it's gonna be your your stomach's gonna be so full, and you're gonna put on your belt belt and you're gonna squat high volume stuff and you're gonna throw up, right? So that is like I would say timing matters in that sense. Uh, you look at what's the immediate impact. Uh, the what is the immediate impact you are seeking. And how are you gonna avoid uh how are you gonna avoid the negative outcome by consuming way, way too much, right? So obviously before, like we probably know as well, as I mentioned, if you consume way too much fiber, you probably go to the bathroom. So if you want to consume your fiber, you probably shouldn't consume so much fiber right before your training, right? Just as uh insurance policy, right? That's one another thing. Uh other factors as well, like Protein intake, right? If you are the kind of lifter that don't, don't like to be uh, really full during your training, like you don't want to be hungry, but you don't want to be stuffed, then if you know protein makes you full, don't consume so much protein right before your training, right? It really just goes back down to uh, how you're going to time all this based on your personal preference. 
and fat. I know some people that like myself, I cannot have high amounts of fat because it just, I would go to the bathroom, right? That's, I just don't process fat that well. Uh, so I probably don't want to have like a high fat meal, like uh, pizza and fried chicken before my training. So uh, that is probably what I would say matters the most in terms of immediate training performance, right? Looking at that. And then after you've done your training, right? Uh, then you can just distribute that the other macronutrients pretty evenly. Probably doesn't really matter as long as you're hitting the targets. So just to say, the question is this, right? Is that I have to hit, I think to frame it simply is I have to hit specific macronutrient targets, right? When is the best time to hit these targets? And how much am I going to allocate towards this specific time? And the time that matters the most usually is right before training. Right. So really pre-training nutrition doesn't have to be so complicated. You eat enough carbohydrates that will help you during your training session. Right. Everybody will be different. And you don't eat things that make you feel like you're going to throw up, poop your pants, or make your belt increase by one hole. Because all of this would probably not be beneficial for your training. So I have quest bars. Kind of like, I do five yes, quest five bars before bar. I go squat. And, yep. and um, that's my advice for everybody listening. Um <laughs> Okay, my friend, here's something a little lighter. So I had sent this to you. We just really, we just, it, it, it's all over the memes now. California is going to ban Skittles. All right. Nobody's getting the sweet rainbows anymore. Have you looked in this? What is going on with these bands? I actually Googled and looked into banned substances, banned, you know, foods around the world. And it's kind of shocking I can hold this article up right now, actually. Let me take a look here. So here is some of the banned foods. And then we could talk to Skittles, but I freaking hate Skittles and think it's disgusting anyways. But it's going to rattle you. Here's some foods, many U.S. foods banned in other countries. Might surprise you that Gatorade was banned at one point in several countries. Um so let's take a little dive in here. And the Gatorade, the reason why it was banned is the brominated vegetable oils, BVO, which is popular in many U.S. products. And also the food dye coloring of yellow five and yellow six that is prominent in some of these Gatorades. I don't know if you're familiar with BVO, but as I scroll down the list of some of these banned substances um, around the world, but not in in terms of the U.S. And if you're wondering, Skittles is also banned due to dyes, yellow five and yellow six. Um, this will also include Tostitos, the fake cheese that you dip your nachos in. And that's also because of the food coloring. Craft. Um, Mac and cheese, more of the same Mountain Dew drinks. It's about the dye as well as B and some of the BVO attached to it. Uh, this will also include some of your Pop-Tarts are banned in other countries. And when we're talking other countries, it's a lot of them. Um, it's kind of surprising. W what are your thoughts here? How is it that we have some countries that'll ban... In, and we're talking like from Japan to China to, you know, spots of Europe, but then over in the U.S., no, we're okay. We're going to keep going. Who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know if this is outside the expertise with BHT, BVO, et cetera, and some of these food coloring dyes, but how do we have this discrepancy? 
yeah, I think you probably don't want me to rant about uh how the great state of California has fallen into the pits because that's they'll probably make uh the American listeners a little bit more more upset than telling what the impacts of this or it'll uh, reinforce some of the American listeners. I'm telling you right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh but I think just just uh just a clarification out there. I, when I read the article, I don't think they necessarily say they'll ban Skittles, but they say if they don't change it, then they'll get fined and they can't sell it, right? So they, pro- they are essentially trying to ban the current iteration of Skittles with this particular food dye. Uh, and I think that, it, I don't know, in Canada, do you have Twix? The cereal? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. like at one point, Twix used like natural dye and they look so bad, right? Because <laughs> like the color looks so bad, right? So uh, I don't know what Skittles is going to do because I think the appeal for Skittles is the color, right? And uh, Taylor actually loves Skittles, right? It's He includes Skittles as like his post weigh-in rehydration. So uh, sorry sorry for Taylor. He might not get his colorful rainbows anymore uh, post weigh-in. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's interesting, right? Uh, all, all, all this kind of stuff. Um, when you talk about like uh, that BBO, right? Which is uh, the vegetable oil with like bromine, right? Uh, and a lot of this kind of stuff, it really does boil down towards the same principle that you use when we look at evaluating aspartame. So you look at it from the perspective as what is the acute impact, right, of it that causes like toxicity, immediate toxicity. And then you look at the long-term impact of it. What is the long-term effect, right? So these are usually the two things that can usually get people, uh, to get substances banned, right? So if we were to break break it down, right, I think that all the food dies, right, the it started back in the day, right? There's this, people uh, started looking at food dyes and they first postulated that food dyes actually uh, make people's like testicles and penis smaller, right? But uh, that, that would was happen to dis- <laughs> too much tweaks. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, but that has not like stand up scrutiny, right? Uh, and I think that at the end of the day, that was kind of like how it started. And then the second concern when it came to food dye was that how it was linked towards uh, like ADHD, right? Back in the day, it was called, back in the 1970s, it was called like hyperactivity. And it was like pioneered by uh, this doctor, I think it's called like Benjamin Feingold, right? So uh, he he essentially looked at, uh, he studied like allergies, right? And I think that looking at food, anybody can have, have an allergic reaction to specific foods, right? We know that a lot of the American population are actually like allergic to peanuts, you know, right? So I say, I, I, I often joke, they say, if you want to kill the Americans in a very cheap way, you just fly a plane across America and just sprinkle peanut powder and like at least like more than 30% people would actually just die from that, you know, uh, because it's so prevalent, but a lot of people can de- develop like allergies. So uh, Benjamin Feingold studied allergies and he was kind of like the pioneer looking at ADHD, uh, uh, in like food dyes, right? And what he did was that he basically developed a diet to actually see if this diet essentially worked for reducing the rate of ADHD or hyperactivity in children back in the day. Uh, and what happened was that uh, it worked, right? Back in the day. Uh, but the diet was actually super restrictive. So you can't, have anything that has those food dyes, right? Like uh, yellow five, red, red four or whatever, right? And you can't even have certain fruits because like 
uh, there's fruits contain things like salicylates, uh, and salicylates is actually contained. It's also in aspirins, right? So certain fruits like apples, you can't have apples because they're salicylates, and basically just eliminating a whole bunch of food. Uh, and here's the kicker, right? Is that the parents have to be on the diet as well, not just the children, you know. Uh, so it's the whole family they have to be on it because like, oh, we're trying to create this environment, right? Uh, so right. Natu- naturally, what happened was that the parents reported <laughs> that the children. Like they were seeing some positive impact. Not sure whether like the 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 parents were like just oh yeah shit now now I'm buying I so I just might as well just report this so I can continue eating my apples or whatever. I'm not saying that that is the case, but it it's it's very behavioral, right? Eating food has a behavioral component towards it, and it's usually the parents that reports the symptoms of the children, not the children itself. Because like a child who has course, yeah. ADHD doesn't even know. And back in the day, 1970s, the screening itself for ADHD isn't even that strong, right? So, uh, and back, I say back in the days, it's called hyperactivity, not even ADHD. So we don't really know how, uh, back in the days, whether those studies were actually like well done or not. Uh, but now I think that when we look at all these food dyes, uh, in terms of ADHD symptoms, I don't think that there's a strong link towards it, uh, in it, uh, you know, based on the current research and evidence, at least right, based on what I know, but I like, say, I, I kind of like, like the, his- the historical element of how all of this, like kind of like started, right. How like. How did it, people start looking at this as a potential problem, right? And obviously, like a lot of these food dyes as well, they are they contain other stuff. It's not they're not just like kids are not drinking food dye. They're eating skittles. They're eating whatever tostitos or you know, back in the day, te- uh, like yellow six or yellow five is tetrazine. Is like it was in Mountain Dew. You know, like Mountain Dew is like really like yellow. All of this style of stuff, like fiber, has other components in it that could cause other stuff. Maybe it's the sugar that makes the kids really hyperactive. Who knows, right? At that point, because like I say, I haven't looked into it specifically. Uh, I just know that that whatever that happened back in the day, right, it's just certain correlations took place. Probably under like not well done uh, environment. And I think that that just like carried on in terms of uh, the the whole food diet, the whole food diet thing, right? It basically started from like like the like Benjamin Feingold. So people just Google like Benjamin Feingold ADHD. They'll probably find a brief history on how all of this came to be. But I think the thing that's actually like interesting is looking at the other things like BVO. So uh, basically like BVO is like vegetable oil with bromine. So what they actually use all this kind of stuff is, you know, it's some form of preservative to actually like hold or bind the stuff better, you know, that, that kind of stuff, right? So when it comes to like BVO or what the the other four ingredients with well, this not what can you can you tell me what I, the other four is at? yeah hold on a second here i go i i know there's the food there's like red five or red six then there's polyparaben bvo and there's one more thing potassium bromelate yo bht uh butylated hydroxy toluene i'm probably butchering this or i don't know if i'm helping you or hurting you by telling you that one but um, yeah, and it's uh, let's take a look here. Uh, lipofolic organic compound chemically derived of phenol that is useful as its antioxidant properties. BHD is widely used to prevent free radical mediated oxidation in fluids and oils, other materials, and regulations overseen by USV or uh, FDA which considers BHT to be in brackets generally recognized as safe. Um, 
allow small amounts to be added to food, despite this earlier determination by the National Cancer Institute that BHT was non-carcinogenic in an animal model. Societal concerns over its broad use have been expressed. BHT also has been postulated as an antiviral drug, but as of December 2022, use of BHT as a drug is not supported by scientific literature. Um, and as I take a look, food additive, BHT is primarily used as antioxidant food additive in the United States is classified as, again, yeah, generally safe. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, and it says health effects. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not too, uh, I'm not as, I don't know if it says prominent, uh, the B, the BHT. Let me see a food here on the list that it is in. Okay, Frosted Flakes. They're great, but in Europe and Japan, they're banned containing BHT, a food preservative that is also used in cosmetics and rubber products. That doesn't necessarily make them unhealthy, but some researchers link BHTs to contain certain cancers, which is why the UK and Europe ban the use of food. General Mills recently made a switch to remove BHT from its cereals, but not every U.S. manufacturer is on board. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think that, you know, when we look at stuff like this, I think that it really is, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, everything, right, the poison is in the dose. Um, I think that if we look at, like, BBO and I think the other thing was like potassium bromelate. Uh, there was there's something basically is, it's something that the acute impact right is actually uh something called bromism right because from the word bromine right it's not that you you eat it and you become a gym bro and like give me my skittles you know you don't become a gym bro right bromism is related to uh bromine uh and the how they actually discovered that was actually very interesting because people actually use bromine to treat certain uh like uh, issues right but the therapy the dose for therapy uh, the therapeutic dose is like three to five grams of bromine bromide so but that actually uh the toxicity is 0.5 to one gram right so the therapeutic dose is higher than the the, the toxic dose right so that's how people realize that uh people that uh bromism was a thing right so 0.5 gram to one gram can cause like acute toxicity uh it's but the limit for the limit for all this like BVO and stuff or like potassium bromelate in I think the, the FDA is is 50 milligrams per kg, right? So for every kilo of stuff, you only can have 50 milligrams, right? It like And usually those common things are fine, found in like flour, right? Because it's a preservative like bagels, you know, to make like the flour a little bit more like bindy, right? Things like this. So if you just imagine like to hit 0.5 grams, right? Which is uh 500 500 milligrams, right? You probably need to eat like 10 kilos worth of that before you can hit that toxicity level, right? Uh, so I think that the, it's the same thing with aspartame, right? Where you have to drink like 21 cans of like of soda to hit the toxicity level of aspartame, right? So these are like the acute toxicity profile, right? In terms of the long-term profile, right? I don't really know. A lot of this is still unclear, right? And the current evidence at least is still murky, but I don't think it, shows uh any uh like side impact side 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 effects uh that is like 
potentially damaging, right? At least based on the things, or at least based on the side effects that all these regulatory bodies has been postulating. Uh, caveat here, right? This disclaimer is this is not me telling people just go out and eat Twix and eat all this kind of stuff, right? And drink Mountain Dew all day, all day. I think it helps to exert caution, right? But I don't think that if you have to, uh, in general, I, I I'm also not a big believer. Like let's say when I when when I have children, I'm not gonna give them like soda, you know. Right, that kind of stuff, right? I'm not gonna give them like any of this, right? So regardless of the coloring, right? So I do think it, and a lot of this stuff, stuff are banned primarily because of the impacts on children, but the impacts on children is not clearly laid out yet, and we cannot be certain. So I don't really think that it's a big issue, right? Uh, so don't really know uh the political angle that people are taking from banning this kind of stuff because obviously like things like cigarettes probably cause way more harm than any of this would ever. Yeah. Right. So I don't really, I don't really think it's like a health thing, you know. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of like my, my my thoughts on it. It really goes back down to the same idea around aspartame, right? What is the acute toxicity that you get, uh, from it, and what are the long term impact? So acute toxicity, you need really really high amounts of it, right? Like I said, salicylates as well. It's contained contained in apples. So if you eat a lot of that, you probably have some acute toxicity from that. But if you eat apples for a long period of time, you know, like I don't. Think that you're gonna uh develop any form of like ADHD problems, right? Especially since they say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So that must definitely be true. So all this nonsense about uh salicylates is hundred percent false. But yeah, I think that's just the way we you just evaluate things. What is the long term impact? Long term impact probably don't know. A lot of it is as of now, it's quite overblown. Acute toxicity, you need a high amounts of it, and a lot of things is like these days. This all of this as well has half life meaning that how much time it takes for the dose that you consume to be like metabolized out of our body, right? By half. So the thing with all this like BVO or potassium bromelate is that the half-life is long. It's like nine to 12 days, right? So as long as you're not consuming like 20 grams of flour, right? In nine to 12 days, 20, sorry, 20 kgs of flour in nine to 12 days, you should be good, you know? Uh, yeah. So this would, it really does help account for the different varies, like it varying from nation to nation like that, where maybe they're just, it's not so much the acute immediate, but they're trying to look into the future and they don't have the numbers. So they're guess it's kind of guesswork. Yep. And like, I, I also think that there, there is kind of like uh, a process, right? So I, I don't want to get like, a, there's always going to be certain political angles towards it. I don't want to really be, I, I don't want to dive into the nitty gritty of speculations, but there, there are like certain countries out there that say, okay, cool. After this, uh, after this year, we will start banning cigarettes, right? But incidentally, right, those countries that start doing that are also the countries that cigarette smoking has already been declining, right? Which means that they don't even get enough, like, so the, the, the first step when people start banning cigarettes is that they don't ban cigarettes first. They increase the taxes on cigarettes really high because obviously if people buy that that they have high amounts of taxes. And when people stop, like the sales of cigarettes have been gradually declining, especially now with people like vaping more, right? Then it, it makes sense for them. Okay, we're just gonna ban it because it makes us look good, but there's nothing for us to lose because the, the money we don't get from taxes, sorry, the money we get from taxes from cigarettes are already so low, it doesn't really matter anymore. But if cigarette smoking was an all-time high and you're getting so much money from cigarette tax, I would probably say that the government will probably not ban cigarette smoking. So there's, I think that behind a lot of this food regulation, there's always going to be some form of like financial incentive, whether that's good or bad, right? So I don't want to speculate. That's why I didn't name any specific countries, but I've actually seen countries like that that 
cigarette smoking has already been on the decline when vaping is going up and then they just like cool let's just ban cigarettes after this uh this time frame no nobody can can buy cigarettes anymore you know so that's when it comes to regulation mm. it's very very complicated uh, but in terms of the actual impact itself cigarettes should be like if you really think this is really dangerous like cigarettes should be like banned way way long time ago right the only thing is that they don't freaking tax your they don't put a 50% tax on your red dye because all those people that are making fabric probably will not be able to make clothes yeah, I was that gonna say, color, you know I was going to say Taylor Rat would pay that tax for those skittles if you if you uh, it is pretty crazy if you think about it that way where some of this stuff is off the market but cigarettes are still there how do you yeah, justify I'm, that how is that even I, who, 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 like I said, all these like regulatory issues are like super complicated, especially when you look at country, countries, different, different countries, right? So, uh, European countries tend to be a little bit more, uh, pre they, they are slightly more safety inclined compared to other nations, right? So, they, 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 they just tend to have more like restrictions around, around that compared to like America or like. Uh, other like for example like developing countries so like i'm from malaysia i don't think like, any of this is banned in malaysia so our health and food regulation is not even that strict so uh so yeah like every country is very different so i i don't necessarily say that think that people should be afraid that because x amount of x countries ban this means that it has a problem it's just that a general like i think that there's always an angle that the regulatory body of the government is trying to play that caters towards that population. And because that population that's so different from other populations in different countries, you can't really say that whether it's a good thing or not. Mm, yeah. Fair enough. Fair, yeah, it doesn't mean you're stricter, so you're better. North America is, might be looser, so it's not. And and this is just like these, there's other situations where maybe the Americans are more strict and they're not, and it's it's flipped. Um, you yeah. know what? I think we hit, we're approaching three hours, by the way. Yeah, I know we, we kind of did it again. I think we hit all of our notes as I touch up on this, but we could always save some more. We, I was telling you, we got to do this more often and we don't have to do three hours so often, but we could just jump in and do, and do these like semi-regularly podcasts. And then we don't, we don't end up doing three hour discussions, but we fucking get into some talking and we don't always solely have to do about nutrition and food, but we can talk about programming, powerlifting, what's been going on, as well as um, getting into cutting and whatnot. I think if we do it more often, uh, yeah, we could size down the length of it and get into more things, more broader topics. But my dude, we just did it again. What time is it over there where you're at, by the way? Uh, for 4 25 p.m so after this i'll just like hit hit to the gym to train okay yeah mom it's 11 30 over here um i'm gonna i'm gonna have me a friggin um a conscience-free decaf coffee with stevia okay yep because i'm not it's not i'm not gonna get any calories for me right or yep. any caffeine oh Sounds shit good. you know what what question i didn't ask you Oh no, I don't know if we can fit this in about cycling because I said I'd do it in the beginning. Cycling caffeine in stems. What are your thoughts on that? And then we wrap it up. Do you think we could do that one? Yeah. So really, 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 really quickly. So I think that okay. if we look at uh caffeine, the reason why people get desensitized to caffeine after time is because its half-life is quite high, binding on the, the receptors in the brain, the 
acetylcholine receptor in the brain. So what happens is that when that, uh, like the half-life of caffeine is anywhere like six to eight, even 10 hours, right? So after a while, you get really desensitized uh, and then you need a higher amount of caffeine to actually uh, get the, a similar effect. So desensitization may actually be a thing. I'm not actually clear on the research, but I think that most people generally recommend like three to four weeks long for desensitization uh, and to get the same impact, right? Other, if not, you can just increase the dose, right? But obviously increasing the dose over time, you would probably have like a lot of like get more and more sens sensitized to it. One big caveat when it comes to caffeine consumption is that uh, there actually have been research showing that even if you consume high amounts of caffeine in the day, right, it will impact your sleep at night, right? So you may be able to sleep, but your sleep may not be as deep, right? So you go kind of go into that big like vicious cycle, right? So limiting caffeine intake later in the day would actually be good. And just remember the half-life of caffeine is actually quite high, uh, sorry, quite long, which means that if you look at, if you consume 300 milligrams of caffeine uh, early in the day, let's just say even if you train in the morning, at, let's just say someone trains in the morning at 8 a.m., right? Uh, like eight hours later, it's like 4 p.m. They still have 150 milligrams, right? And 150 milligrams is roughly, you know, depending on the coffee, right? Three to four shots of coffee. So, uh, and then another six to eight hours, which is 10 p.m., you still have 75 milligrams, right? So 155, 150 milligrams is usually a can of monster, right? So you have a can of monster in your system worth of caffeine at 4 p.m. And at 10 p.m., you have half a can of monster at a worth of caffeine in your in your system because of the 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 half life of caffeine. So that actually shows you how much if you consume three hundred milligrams of caffeine at eight a.m. by ten p.m. you still have half a can of monster in your body. So that's something to consider as well, right? So it isn't really just about the desensitization effect. Like I said, always evaluate things from the acute impacts and the slightly longer term impacts, right? The acute impact is that sure you get a slight boost, but what is the acute impact if you keep doing it and if you're just really hampering your sleep, right? So what is that? And other ways to mitigate that? Other ways, uh, other things to be uh, that could prevent that? So I can't really tell people what to do because everybody's caffeine consumption is uh, very different. I personally like coffee, right? I just like the taste of coffee. I, I'm kind of a coffee snob. So I always drink coffee regardless of whether they have caffeine or not. But unfortunately, decaf coffee doesn't taste as good because they have to like, for some, they have to wash the caffeine out from the coffee beans and that just ruins the flavor of the coffee. So uh, I would always have a coffee every day just because I, I I like it. Uh, so yeah, that's a caffeine in a nutshell, I guess. As a coffee snob, how bad did it hurt you to hear I'm going to drink decaf with stevia? You're probably so upset right now. I don't even know if we're going to be okay afterwards. I'm going to message you and you won't, you'll leave me on scene. What's going on? I mean, I, just... I mean, if you already put any form of sweetener, whether that's stevia, aspartame, saccharine, sugar in your coffee, I'm really like a big no. So is uh, that really? <laughs> You're a super duper coffee snob. No, All right, Bob. Yeah. I'll try to go yeah. straight up black, but it's still decaf. Yeah. It's not the same. Yeah. I get. I agree with you. It's not the same, but sometimes your boy just craves coffee. I I, I I don't I don't blame you because the double double in Team Hortons is pretty good. So. You know, I will, I will let that pass sometimes. Double-double is pretty all right. So I can understand why you want some sweetness uh, in your coffee, especially if you kind of like live through, you're living in a place where you can just have double-double whenever you want. So kind of understand That's that. That's it. That's yeah. it. All right, my friend. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for answering all the questions. We got to do it sooner. This time cool. we got to do it sooner. We'll, st we'll, we'll, we'll be in the DMs. And uh, yep. I was thinking actually, when I was listening to this, maybe I float you this video we both listen to it. And maybe if you do the first half, I do the second half or something, we get some timelines. I don't know. 
Yep. Sounds good to me. It'd be interesting. Switch it up a bit. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right, man. Um, Because people want those timeline, timestamps, I meant to say. Timestamps on them. If we divvy up the work, maybe we could get it done for the listeners and they'll appreciate it. Yep. And if there is no timestamps, it's because Kedrick afterwards like, that. Oh, fuck that. I just said yes on the video, but I ain't doing that, man. I'm yep. too busy. All right. But uh, cool. there it is. When's the next time I'm going to see you, man? Are you going to be at Sheffield no. again? Probably. Uh, I, I would like to go, but I said to, to the extent of my involvement uh, would be up, 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 up in the air, right? I mean, the wall card for the mill hasn't really been announced. Uh, I know that EV would be there, so I at least have one lifter which i am working with uh for nutrition uh but yeah i, I, w- I would like to be at sheffield uh if i yeah but i i think that i would try to go regardless of whether i get yeah whether that's coaching whether that's helping you with just a nutrition or whether that's being in the crowd i would like to be at sheffield so that's my answer oh god i love hanging out with you cool. if you see well i'll see you when i see you we'll, we'll talk in the dms and stay in touch until next time everybody listening please do subscribe give us high ratings six pack lap it at six up and we are out